This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. It's Thursday morning. Happy Internet Day to you all. Ah, the great Internet Day. I love the celebrations on Internet Day. Why is that? Because you get to get on the Internet and just celebrate. You're on there every day anyways. Yeah, but I'm not celebrating. How do you celebrate? I get on the Internet. The website I was looking on was was talking about turning off the Internet. That's how you should celebrate. Yeah, yeah. Put your phone away, turn off your watch. It's also National Hermit Day, which is the day that we, you know, take a little time to go be alone. You know? So maybe they shouldn't be on the same day. Or they should be on the same day. You celebrate the internet by going to be alone somewhere. In the park where there's no Wi-Fi. I don't know. Some parks have Wi-Fi. Yeah. You have to find the right park. Let's ask, let's ask the number one hermit we know. Hey, Ben. What do you do on Hermit Day? I am not a hermit, so I would not know. By the way, speaking of hermits, uh, my first pet, a hermit crab. Mm. And it's because my mom didn't think I could handle another type of animal that demanded any more attention than that. So what did you have to do to take care of this crab? Every morning I would pour some water in its little cup thing. All right. In its little aquarium thing. Terrarium. I don't know what you put a crab in. Um, terrarium, probably. Shoebox. Sure. Yeah, and then I would get some, and I don't know if this is right, but I'd get some like Wheaties, and I'd crumble them up. Probably not. Throw a little lettuce in there. Wheaties? Mm-hmm. I don't think they would find that. Oh, they loved it in the wild. My hermit crab was huge, <laughs> ripped. One ripped hermit crab. So happy Hermit Day, National Hermit Day, the day to get away. So to really celebrate, you should go in your house. Shut all the blinds, don't turn on the lights, yeah. and just be just with your be alone. thoughts. Basically. In seclusion. Because then you write some sort of manifesto, yeah. Yeah. and the cops will kick your cabin door down. And, and then, then we're into a conspiracy theorist, which is what we're going to be talking about today with Dr. Preston Bost will be joining us. Um, he is he's, – he's an expert in these conspiracy the, – the psychology behind a conspiracy theorist. They're thinking something. So we wanted to find out what. What are they all thinking? Because I think it's obvious the blimp, the, the, the getaway blimp, Yes, you know that that's part of a larger spy ring. Right. It was on purpose. You know it. I saw a video of uh, what CBS News spoke to the people who manned that station. Mm-hmm. And when they put those blimps up, because yeah. it was part of our defense against cruise missiles or something and uh, the guys look the military guys holding it, he goes look at this this tether there's no way this can break this will withstand hurricane force winds <laughs> it would be an act of god if this thing ah, breaks see then it breaks and then it breaks yeah and like the people around there are really concerned because these are massive blimps they're huge and, and they cost like two and a half billion dollars don't they something like it's that. an expensive blimp and so they're really concerned that these things are floating above their heads and obviously as as the guy called it, military mismanagement is the thing breaks and floats around. <laughs> it is no, it was it's a, it's a ruse. They were trying to gather data, so as it was just floating all over the east coast, it's gathering data. Right, that'll that'll be on a website somewhere. 
It's oh. a, they were testing the technology. Those will be all over the country. That's when I got the tinfoil out and I started covering my body. <laughs> in tinfoil. We will be speaking on the psychology of conspiracy theories in just a minute. But before we go there, we've got to get to the greatest conspiracy theory of them all. Last night, the GOP debate. Holy cow. Holy cow. I listened to it. I had a speech last night and I listened, um, I listened to half of it. Mm. So I got a good I got a good dose. And then I then I then I saw all the highlights. But loser. The loser of the debate, the media. CNBC. CNBC specifically, but the media they were the beating post of the GOP. And they should have. I think CNBC was just crazy. They were all they were too much a part of the debate. The minute you're sucked into the debate where you're debating a person that's on the stage and you're actually debating them. You're going to get in trouble, especially with the GOP, because they don't like you. They were even booed. The CNBC hosts were even booed. The minute you're getting booed, even though it's a a hostile audience against you, right? I get that. But I don't know. They shouldn't have been that involved. Well, some of the questions seem like they were wording them, Mm -hmm. and then they could be fought over the factual nature of whatever they were talking about. Probably shouldn't have been a question they included. No matter what, you just can't call it like a clown candidacy. Isn't that what he called Trump's thing? I, when I heard that, he, I'm like, he, you, did you just say it's a clown? Well, that, they tried to equate it to a comic book villain. Yeah, but because you're doing all these crazy things, and you're, yeah, you're, they're they're trying to discredit, oh, comic, yeah. yeah, comic book villain. They're trying to discredit Trump and saying you're you're nuts essentially. But, and he's like, what are you doing? But you, you these are issues people care about. You don't say that. You just can't. Even even if someone else has said it, you can't just say, well, some people have said yeah. you're a comic book candidacy. You can't. Okay, well, sure. Some people have also said, I'm called from God, sent here to change the world. Let's talk about that. Yeah. But they don't ever talk about that. It was just crazy. They were trying to get – It's. I think it almost feels like they're trying to get the YouTube video moment. Yeah, yeah. Instead of just t- you know talk about the issues and be the moderator, they're mm-hmm. trying to get out there and you know get ratings and get attention. Because do you watch CNBC? Uh, no. Do you know where it is on your, your um, I, I know where it is on my server? dial. But I have I don't. no idea. <laughs> but it's also interesting because these I had never really known any of these uh, the, the people that were asking the questions. I'd right. never heard of them. But that aside, it's just it was just weird, and, and it ended up being you know it gave some pretty good hits. In fact, let's listen to a few of them. Ted Cruz went right off on it. This is not a cage match. And you look at the questions. Donald Trump, are you a comic book villain? Ben Carson, can you do math? John Kasich, will you insult two people over here? Marco Rubio, why don't you resign? Jeb Bush, why have your numbers fallen? How about talking about the substantive issues people care about? Man. Mm. That was right at the beginning. I'm like, well, here we go. Better buckle in. Um, Another crazy moment to me was... Jeb Bush, man, and everyone's saying he didn't do very well. Like, in fact, you gave me a really funny list of, of things people say about how Jeb did. But I, I don't know. He doesn't have enough. It doesn't seem like he wants to be doing this. No. And every, everything he does seems awkward. Yeah, he's Like maybe he's there's tired. some sort of prepared line that he's trying to get to, yeah. and he's just awkwardly trying to figure out how to. It's just he's not he, very good at this. Here, here's an example. Okay, um, let's let's play clip six. This is Jeb going after his protege, Marco Rubio. But Marco, when you signed up for this, this was a six-year term, and you should be showing up to work. I mean, literally, the Senate. What is it like a French work week? You get like three days where you have to show up. 
You can campaign or just resign and let someone else take the job. There are a lot of people living paycheck to paycheck in Florida as well. They're looking for a senator that will fight for them each and every day. Mm. When he said that, I thought he was going to go to people who are living paycheck to paycheck and they they yeah. take your job. Yeah, they they'd love your job. They yeah. and, but, and but they'd it, even love the hours. <laughs> Um, now, this is Marco Rubio. Play clip 16. This is Marco Rubio on the attack, on, on why Bush is doing this. I don't remember you ever complaining about John McCain's vote record. The only reason why you're doing it now is because we're running for the same position and someone has convinced you that attacking me is going to help you. I've been, Here's the bottom line. I'm not, my campaign is going to be about the future of America. It's not going to be about attacking anyone else on this stage. Mm. Play 15. This is Rubio again. My campaign... It's going to be about the future of America. It's not going to be about attacking anyone else on this stage. I will continue to have tremendous admiration and respect for Governor Bush. I'm not running against Governor Bush. I'm not running against anyone on the stage. I'm running for president because there is no way we can elect Hillary Clinton to continue the policies of Barack Obama. Whoa. So a lot of people are saying, man, Rubio did great. Rubio held his own. But it also – it seemed to just put Jeb on his heels. In fact, um, a couple of uh, – you know, these are all the pundits, the, the, the talking heads like Matt Drudge of the Drudge Report. He said Jeb Bush can eat carbs now. You're done, Jeb. And that's, that's Drudge for heaven's sakes. 538, um, yay uh, – yeah, no, what did it say? Yeah, Jeb Bush is probably toast, reads the headline from Nate Silver's post. On Slate, the magazine said it was do or die. Writes James Bowie and Bush died. Man, Bush might have cash reserves and support from family backers, but after tonight, he slipped into the second tier. Whoa. So they're saying Bush is slipping. Um, Huckabee, by the way, totally, totally enamored with Donald Trump. He, did you hear all that? Yeah. He's even wearing his tie. Yeah, that's what he said. And then everyone tried to jump in with the joke. Hey, is it from China? How about Mexico? <laughs> It's crazy. Anyway, it was a debate, folks, and um, I think it was. I mean, it was. It's fun to watch. It was. I think it was the most entertaining, but also the most frustrating debate of all debates. And you know, they all have ideas, but who knows? And, and I think that Ted Cruz has the solution to all this. What a cage match! That's not a bad idea. A cage match. The, Fight to the death? The WWE has done it for years. Yeah. Just put a cage up, I mean, SummerSlam, go for it. Okay, let me ask you this. <laughs> chairs, are chairs allowed or not? Yeah. That I mean, it's be. a cage match. <laughs> they, I mean, he, he, that's what they're trying for. They want to get right. this whole, you know, they, the media seems to, uh, as you see from the questions they had last night, they're, elev- they're going to the things that don't matter. Right, they're right. going to these things that are sort of viral headlines instead of the issues, which is what these guys want to talk about because that's yeah. what they're trying to run on. But nobody wants to hear about that. Well, and then, again, back to the conspiracy about the news media. It's, it is the greatest, the biggest pack. I think that's what Rubio said. Well, who, who they ben- already have their biggest pack. Who benefits, who benefits from all the pack money? That's right. That's media right. advertising, that's right? right? It is a tangled web. It's crazy. Anyway, interesting debate. I would love, I would love to see the next uh, Democratic debate that heated. No, it's Bernie. <laughs> well, but yeah, you'd need nap time, and you'd need. To... And there's only three of them left, right? Yeah. You got O'Malley. You got Bernie well, Sanders you do. and Hillary. You put so... two chairs in the middle of the room. Okay. And you start playing music. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> then you, that's how you start the fight because no one will initiate it there. Let's go to the headlines, find out what's el- what else is going on around the world. 
As we're talking about, Jeb Bush had a tough night at the third Republican debate. He got the least amount of speaking time of any candidate with only four minutes and 56 seconds of airtime. Marco Rubio led the way eight minutes and 44 seconds of airtime. Many have written that said this morning that it was another campaign failure for younger, the younger Bush. Jeb Bush's campaign manager, Danny Diaz, reportedly got into a heated argument with a CNBC producer outside the theater Wednesday evening during the debate, complaining about the limited amount of speaking time his candidate had received thus far. Statistics do show that Bush had indeed spoke the least of all the candidates on stage. RNC chairman Reins Priebus was also not happy with CNBC. I was uh, proud of our candidates for standing up to a pretty hostile environment. I was very disappointed in the moderators. I'm disappointed in CNBC. You know, I thought maybe they would bring forward a pretty fair forum here tonight. But I think it was one gotcha question, one personal low blow after the other. In other news, House Republicans nominated Paul Ryan as Speaker of the House on Wednesday ahead of Thursday's Housewide vote that will formally make him John Boehner's replacement. New day in the House of Representatives. John Boehner served with humility and distinction, and we owe him a debt of gratitude. But tomorrow, we are turning the page. We are not going to have a House that looked like it looked the last few years. The vote was 200 to 43, with Representative Daniel Webster coming in second. The South Carolina police officer who body slammed a high school girl reportedly after she refused to leave a classroom has been fired. The incident involving uh, ben, uh, what Deputy Ben Fields was caught on camera. Another student involved was also arrested. The unidentified girl's attorney says she suffered multiple injuries to her neck and back, and her arm is currently in a cast. So she was was hurt in that altercation. She was tossed and flung across the room. Beijing has decided to end its 35-year-old policy restricting couples to have only one child because of China's aging populace. The ruling Communist Party will reportedly now allow families to have two children, expanding upon a limited birth rate set in 1979 in reaction to its booming population growth. So that's a huge change for China. And last night, the Kansas City Royals beat the New York Mets in Game 2 of the World Series 7-1, to the Royals are now up 2 nothing. Wow. And that, that series shifts to New York for Game 3 That's Friday shocking, night. everybody. Like, did, didn't the Mets I, – I thought, I thought the Mets were just going to dominate. <laughs> just depends. That's how the ball how excited. bounces. Hey, by the way, cool news for China. That is awesome. I mean, think about all of the families in China that have wanted two kids and could not do it, could not have them. Oh, what a relief. That's great. That's seriously great. Um Powerful, uh, isn't it amazing? Just change. Change can, can do so much good in the world. We are going to take a break, folks. Uh, for some, the changes in the world are great. For others, they end up becoming a conspiracy. Are you one that is quick to believe in the conspiracy theory? You know, whether it's 9-11, JFK's assassination, Area 51, what have you, do you quickly jump into the conspiracy bandwagon? Well, in just a few moments, we're going to be speaking to an expert on conspiracy theory and the psychology behind it. It's uh, it's a pretty interesting little uh, interview. We're going to be learning a lot and see if you are prone to the conspiracy theory psychology. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, get the tools you need to understand and live a healthier, happier life. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, Area 51, JFK's assassination, the moon landing, 9-11 attacks, and many, many more conspiracies are surrounded, uh, are, you know, are out and about in our environment, in our world. So many people have different views, perspectives of what happened with those events. And for years, society has often viewed these conspiracy theorists in a negative light, often labeling them as crazy, ill-informed, or uneducated. But we wanted to find out more about conspiracy theorists and the psychology behind it all. Our guest today is Dr. Preston Bost, and he is a professor of psychology at Wabash College and researches cognitive psychology behind conspiracy theories. He's here on the phone to talk with us um, about an article he wrote called Crazy Beliefs, Sane Believers Toward a Cognitive Psychology of Conspiracy Ideation. Dr. Preston Bost, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks so much. I appreciate the invitation to join you today. What a what an interesting subject. When we saw your article, we thought, okay, oh, we got to we got to have you on because we we hear conspiracy almost conspiracy after conspiracy. Even after the debate last night, the the you know the the extreme media conspiracies against the GOP and all of these things. Um, talk to us a little bit about, I guess, first of all, how did you how did you become so interested in conspiracy theories? You know, this is where I'm supposed to give you a really good intellectual answer. That's right. Sound academic. That's right. But to tell you the truth, um, I was in my first sabbatical in 2006 and struggling with what my research would be. And uh, I went to see a movie. And uh, you may remember uh, the second most popular movie that year was The Da Vinci Code. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, And I went to see this, and I was um, consuming it as a piece of uh, entertainment. Uh And, uh, you know, I don't know if your listeners will remember the the, um, sort of the popular culture surrounding this movie at the time, and, of course, the book by the same name. But uh, I realized at the time that a lot of the folks who were reading the book and talking about the book and talking about the movie were not consuming it as pure entertainment, but were actually consuming it as history. Right. Some truth. And uh, and, uh, for your listeners who may not be familiar with it, it, of course, presents a theory of a uh, a 2,000-year-old conspiracy by the Catholic Church to cover up the the um, the marriage of Jesus Christ to Mary Magdalene and his lineage that followed him, and so um, by a group called the Priory of Sion. <laughs> and it interested me that so many people who were just normal folks right. um, really seemed to find uh, to lend credence to the theory presented presented in the story, and and these folks who included uh, friends and family of mine were not obviously deranged in any way. Um, <laughs> And Did, so they hadn't that, written manifestos, right? They weren't. No, they, they were not wearing foil hats. That's right. Uh, they were not obsessives. They they were just normal folks, and even um, even though they 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 seemed to believe this uh, fairly elaborate conspiracy theory that I didn't subscribe to, I thought, well, you know, there's there's a story here, hmm. um, and anytime you see. A cognitive phenomenon that that cuts across a section of humanity culturally, um, it seems like an interesting thing to, thing to research, and so that that's how I got into this. And then behind it, are, are, is there a makeup of what makes a good conspiracy theory, or is it can anything become a conspiracy theory? Yeah, 
really good question. Um, and if, if you read the literature, you'll see sort of some varying definitions of what really constitutes a, a conspiracy theory. I'll give you mine. Yeah. Um, I, I refer to it as, and this is sort of my academic definition of it, it's a, a narrative that explains events in terms of multiple actors coordinating in secret, typically um, with uh, the intent to further their own interests or undermine the interests of others. Now, I add one additional piece to it, and I think it's important. Uh, typically, these narratives oppose some official or received ca account of the same okay. event. And, and I think that's important because uh, consider 9-11, for instance. So I happen to believe that the events of 9-11 were the product of secret, coordinated action among members of a terrorist group. Right. Others might say that uh, it was the product of secret, coordinated action by members of the United States government. But, but only one of us is called a conspiracy theorist, and only one of us is the topic of, of academic study. Hmm. Um, and so, so I think, I think uh, a conspiracy theory in the sense that you and I are talking about it today really refers to an account that opposes some sort of official or, or received explanation. Well, and it couldn't be more timely after the Benghazi hearings because it seems right. like to me the Benghazi situation has become the next or latest greatest conspiracy theory. I think you're right, and um, and that means it'll be with us for quite some time. Is that so, true? So, so conspiracy theories stick with us, even if seemingly disproven. You can't trust it because the 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 proof came from the people trying to keep the secret. Exactly, and and any time you encounter, uh, at least as as conspiracy theories go, any time you encounter counter evidence that actually becomes assimilated as further evidence in favor <laughs> of the theory, right? The fact that we can't find the documents means that the documents were hidden, for, right. for instance. Right. And, uh, and conspiracy theories are, are like the, the Hydra, right? You, 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 you can't quite kill them. You there. can't kill it. It just pops out another out. head, doesn't it? Right, and they come up quickly. I've been uh, after your lead-in this morning. I was looking to see if there were already internet conspiracy theories about that NORAD blimp. Yeah, um, uh, we'll see them any moment now. Oh, I'm sure. Well, and we just did the story about China now allowing two children. Right. Uh, so there'll, there'll be a whole conspiracy behind that. I mean, it's like I, almost I, I, every I, I, issue, right. right, could create right. it. What 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 is it that leads to? I mean, because like you said. It, they're just normal people. They're just everyday people. They're not all psychologically impaired. They're not all – they don't all have mental illness. So what is it that draws our minds into the conspiracy theory mentality? You know, one of, one of the lessons in psychology that we have to keep learning is that it's – we should look to circumstance and situation as a way of explaining what somebody – how somebody behaves or what somebody believes. So – you know, we have this stereotype of, of the conspiracy theorist as being on the fringe. Well, right. we know now that that's not true. Probably half of the United States public or probably more subscribes to one or more conspiracy theories, and they cut across demographics, they cut across personality characteristics, they cut across educational levels. And so, so if you can't look to the person or the type of person, the next thing is to look to the, the, the situation. And... Um, and uh, one of the one of the themes that that research is converging on now is that 
when people experience um, a circumstance that causes them to feel out of control or uh, out of control of their circumstances, um, not in control of their own fates, that that seems to be a precursor to uh, lots of conspiracy thinking. So this, um, they might have experienced a, a natural disaster or uh, might have been a victim of a crime. Uh, right, or they mm-hmm. they, they might uh, they might have even uh, done something s- as simple as read a story that made them think about their own mortality. Um, or you could even read a story that describes the stock market as random and disordered. Right. All these things make us feel out of control of the circumstances that are uh, that are governing our lives. And, and when that happens, that seems to be a trigger for suspicion generally, um, which is a capacity that we all have naturally. So that's an interesting trigger. Like 9-11, we felt out of control. Yes. Uh, the uh, John Lennon's death, JFK's death, Elvis's death. We had this this incredible loss and immediate. And 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 the the events, and you'll notice the pattern here. The the events that evoke conspiracy theories carry the seeds of those conspiracies in them because those events tend to uh, make us feel um, uprooted or anxious yeah. or concerned about our futures in a way that that um, triggers that, that natural human capacity to, to suspect um, those in our environment. Wow. And, I mean, uh, this is so fascinating. So it's really just natural. It's natural when you're feeling uprooted, when you're feeling um, a tension, a, a sense of anxiety, anxiousness, out of control, mm-hmm. you then your brain starts to try to make sense of it in its really creative way. Yeah, and, and this is one of the major, I think, themes of cognitive psychology generally is that whenever we're making errors, whenever we're reaching conclusions that violate, say, statistical probabilities or forensic evidence or, or that sort of thing, usually you can see within that um, – the operation of of a system that's supposed to be adaptive but is being tricked in some way. So we live in community with one another, um, which means that we rely on reciprocal exchange, we rely on forming alliances. Mm-hmm. Um, and if if that's going to work, the human mind has the has to have the capacity to suspect others or to be alert um, for the possibility of exploitation. Yeah. And 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 the and my suspicion with conspiracy theories at, at least is that these may these may be an example of one of those tricks where sort of our natural software has been appropriated um in some way and has led uh led us to maybe incorrect conclusions. Mm-hmm. But you can see why that that might be the product of an adaptive system, right? Yeah, because, that yeah, that's um, us being flexible. Uh, right and and the costs of being exploited are considerable, mm-hmm. right? And and so so being hyper vigilant every now and then probably isn't such a bad thing. I, I guess um, yeah. In, until we then swing too far, I guess. Right, and that's um, and that's what of course happens with conspiracy theories is they be, they become inflexible, um, difficult to falsify, and something that becomes very dear to the mind that's holding on to them, but. The the dirty little secret here is that in that respect they're not that much different from the kinds of cognitive errors that we make, even those of us who don't believe in conspiracy theories. Right. Yeah. Right. 
it's just, it's just same kind of thing. It's just a different. It's just a different air. It's actually probably less a less socially acceptable air. Right. Yes, and I, I think that's true. And and uh, they've probably become less socially acceptable in recent generations. Um, some colleagues of mine. Uh, doing research on the history of conspiracy theories found that they used to be a much more acceptable form of, mm. of public discourse. And yeah. now, now they're, they're, a, they're a disqualifier or a marginalizing. And I wonder if that's true because we also now have access to more data. When there was less data, it seems yeah. like you could keep a conspiracy theory more alive and more acceptable. Right. And what better reflection to have on Internet Day, right? That's exactly um, right. Uh, and and the, National Hermit Day. Right. <laughs> they go hand in hand. The tools of information exchange have made made conspiracy theories very easy to share, very yeah. easy to propagate. Oh, this is fascinating. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Preston Bost, um, and he's he's walking us through the psychology of conspiracy theories and and theorists. Really, um, it's, he wrote a great article called "Crazy Beliefs: Sane Believers Toward a Cognitive Psychology or Toward a Cognitive Psychology of Conspiracy Ideation." We'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion with uh, Dr. Bost and uh, see if there's anything we can do to uh, to maybe hear, you know, feel the fear of the conspiracy and process it maybe a little bit more wholly, a little bit more complete. Or what should we do if we're caught up into a, a conspiracy theory? Is there a way to, you know, gather more data and maybe um, just be healthier, uh, however, that, however that comes out? We'll take a break. We're talking conspiracy theories, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Preston Bost, and uh, he is um, from Wabash College. He's a professor of psychology there and uh, is walking us through the psychology behind um, conspiracy theories. And he's already taught us some pretty interesting things. For example, a, a lot of times it's, it's where we have a sense or a fear that we're losing control. There might be a little anxiety about it. And our brain will then naturally try to make sense and protect itself from, you know, other people in society. I mean, your brain is just being – it's being responsive to possible threats. So so your brain might even make up possible situations, possible scenarios, and uh, those might become the conspiracies that we're talking about. So Dr. Preston Bost, welcome back to the show, my friend. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to join you. I, I really think this is fascinating because instead of just sitting there thinking that everyone's just a crazy loon for um, for believing in a conspiracy or or jumping on a bandwagon of something, but it, it, it really is – it's just a, a way that our minds cognitively are trying to make sense of something we have feel like we've lost control of. Absolutely, and that's, that's really um, – from the perspective of cognitive psychology, really quite – Normal. Yeah. Um, it's not pathological at all, and in some sense, it's probably uh, maybe even adaptive, right? As right. We're trying to make sense and react to, to the circumstances that we encounter. 
Is it – what are some other factors that uh, I guess influence a person's susceptibility to this? Um, I mean one I guess is if you're a little more anxious maybe – uh, maybe, although um, generally being an anxious person doesn't seem to be predictive of conspiracy beliefs. It seems to be that your your anxiety needs a target or a trigger of some mm. kind. Yeah. Um, um, so th- that's the that's the big uh, th- that's the big factor. Um, one of the one of the other cognitive triggers that's been the subject of my work is um, that if you're able to construct a, a narrative. Um, that explains the potential motive of the alleged conspirator, mm-hmm. that that makes a conspiracy theory mu- that much easier to swallow. So just to, uh, just to give you an example of this, suppose that, um, um, heaven forbid, you met your, your untimely demise and, and some shadowy organization were um, alleged to have alleged to have brought about that yeah. that event um and and the public is now confronted with with whether this conspiracy is in fact responsible document evidence might matter forensic evidence might matter but what matters equally as much is whether they can see why mm. um that that organization or that group might have done it or might have benefited that story of motive uh, turns out to be equally as important as any direct evidence that that you might uh, might expect. Yeah. Um, is is that because our brains? I guess once I have the motive, my brain can make up the evidence. Sure. And and part of the story here again is what comes naturally to us. So when it comes to evaluating things like statistical probabilities and 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 DNA evidence and all that sort of thing and documents, all that is complicated and has to be learned and requires expertise, but but understanding human action in terms of people being self-interested actors and trying to get what they want comes naturally to even a three-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly if, uh, if you're under time pressure or under stress, then reverting to these forms of sort of intuitive reasoning where okay, I, I see the motive here. I understand why they might have gained from this becomes equally as important as any sort of scientific evidence mm-hmm. that, that might be brought to bear on the theory. You know, it, it really, and I hate to keep bringing it up, but the Benghazi hearings, because I was so intrigued with just the kind of the prosecute, prosecutorial approach of sure. it all. But there there wasn't like outstanding evidence it didn't seem like of a right. major conspiracy, but there there seemingly was a motive when a, when there's an election that's two months right. away. So, and what it seemed to have done is everybody that believed in that conspiracy could keep believing that, even though there wasn't evidence necessarily, like a smoking gun, and those that didn't didn't. Right, and it's it's certainly easy to. Um it's certainly easy to construct a motive story around yeah. around this topic. Right, right? it makes and, no and yeah. That, that's going to make it quite believable to a segment of the public, certainly. Is is it is if you are more prone, are some people just more prone overall to believe conspiracy theories? If you believe one, do you tend to believe more, or is it just very situational, depending on what your triggers are? That's a really good question, and and I've got a two part answer. I guess I'll answer the second part first, which is that yes. If a person holds one conspiracy sort of cognition, 
they are likely to have others. So if you believe one conspiracy theory, you may well believe another, or you may, uh, or you may see the world as governed by, by conspiracies, or you may see yourself as being the victim of conspiracies in your own life. So mm -hmm. there does tend to be a certain consistency to it. Um, but it's unclear whether it's a certain type of person that's prone to that worldview or not, or whether it's just a person falls into it by virtue of, of the, the type of information they're exposed to and the type of lives that they, they happen to have led. That, that question's still up for considerable debate. Hmm. Okay. Is there, if, um, is there a way to circumvent conspiracy thinking be, like by being more critical or by you know being more open to information. Um, yeah, very good. So there's some research about um, sort of inoculating effects, where um, if before a person is exposed to a, say a conspiracy theory or conspiracy allegation, they're given some information about critical thinking and about evaluating information that that may be sort of at least a sort of a at least a thin suit of armor mm -hmm. um, yeah um, um, there's not been a lot of research on it and certainly we know that once a conspiracy theory is taken root it, it's very difficult very difficult to get rid of mm. the the research on that says that if you if you're if you're dead set on communicating with a conspiracy believer and trying to, to pull them off of that belief, then there's very little that you should expect to do. But to the extent that you can speak about facts and keep your communications um, brief and simple and avoid name-calling. Yeah, right. Um, which are good principles generally, I think. Yeah, exactly. You don't need to hate each other. But this, is, this really, I think, is um, important too as we think about like the war on terror – and right. some of kind of the grooming supposedly that's being done to recruit people into terrorist groups. I mean, it seems like conspiracy theorists might be more prone to start following a certain line of thinking. And then if if you just keep feeding the conspiracy theorist uh, the information they need and the fear they that drives it, you might you might hook someone. And certainly, in in certain circumstances, it can can become a, a dominating sort of worldview. That's not always what happens, but, yeah. but it certainly can. You know, it just seems also like this can happen. It wouldn't probably be called conspiracy thinking, but it would be um, in our own marriages. In our own, if if all of a sudden I am traumatized because I find out that my spouse was having an emotional affair with somebody. That could be traumatic enough that I now have the motive. I start writing the narrative that they are in a conspiracy, and I see it everywhere. Right, and and then now you've got a scaffold that yep. you can that you can attach lots of selectively chosen evidence to. Hmm. Right. Is this more pronounced now in the information age? Um, with I mean, TV. It seems like there's a lot of movies that play on these conspiracies, like you were saying earlier. Sure. Um, just the the Da Vinci Code, for example. Right, and, and there's certainly a lively trade in in Hollywood and conspiracy theories and theorists. I I tend not to think that conspiracy theories are really more common in the population now. Um, I, I think we may be more aware of them because the more exotic ones just get played over and over on our on our TV screens um, and on the on the movie screen. Um, 
So I think there's a bit of an illusion there. Uh, it may feel as if they're around and that we're sort of steeped in them. But really, I think, uh, at least as I understand the evidence from, from other researchers, this is this is just sort of common to the human experience. Yeah. Um, Pre-information age, post-information age, it's something that we've lived with by virtue of our capacity, natural capacity for suspicion. And it really, it seems like it impacts our, the, the narratives that are not so trusting um, tend to impact the overall narrative as a whole yeah. in society. Well, Right, and and you you wonder if it can become self-perpetuating. Right, right? exactly. That um, that the more we talk about conspiracies, the more fearful we become of um, those in power, right? Mm-hmm. Those in charge, and and the more susceptible we we might become to to further conspiracies, right? Whether there be a a snowball effect, right? Right. Um, it remains to be seen, but it's certainly certainly something to think about, right? It is, and it's also, I guess, interesting to think about. I mean, sometimes it might be the GOP that's pegged more as conspiracy theory minded, but but it also might simply be because they might feel like they've been less in power. Right. And that's exactly uh, uh, consistent with the research, right? That conspiracy theorizing is not um, exclusive to one party or another, and it tends to shift – more to one party or than another, depending on who's in power at the exactly. moment. So there's some great research showing that the propagation of conspiracy theories uh, tracks with the loss of elections. Mm-hmm. Let's well, um, like 9/11, and you know the whole Iraq War was a conspiracy mm-hmm. of the Bush administration, and then right. Benghazi is a conspiracy. So it, let's, I guess it's an equal opportunity destroyer. Absolutely, absolutely. Democrat, Republican, we all uh, we are all are, are uh, in the same boat. Oh, it's so interesting. Hey, as we wrap it up um, again, we're speak- we're speaking with Preston Boss, uh, Bost from um, Wabash University, and he's he's uh, teaching us about conspiracy theories. Um, teach us is so just the average person. I always like to go to the average human, right? Um, what what can I do? Like tomorrow, if I know I'm I'm really frustrated with beliefs that you know whatever party's doing whatever to me, what uh, what is what's something I can do tonight today to start to de-stress that pressure from the conspiracy in my mind? Um, as in, if you're if you find yourself tempted to believe a conspiracy, yeah, um, I you know I think there there to the extent that. If it's coming from a sense of a loss of control in your life, there are – and not to engage in, in any uh, therapy advice here because right. that's, not my, that's not my area. But there are simple exercises that you can do to increase your own sense of control. In fact, uh, simply remembering times in your life yeah. that, uh, where you were in control of events may, may allow you to take a, take a, bit, of a bit of a breath. Um, and I think – I, and I always say this because I'm a, I'm a scientist: is reaffirm your own commitment to to the rules of evidence, um, and and to the idea that your average person really isn't uh, really isn't truly evil. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And that's 
that's probably a useful reminder oh, for in sure. the face of that temptation. Yeah, they're just a fellow traveler. They're not right. an assassin. Yeah. <laughs> that's always helpful. Dr. Preston Boss, thank you so much for your great work and uh, very interesting work. I know we'll have you back uh, for some more talks. Appreciate your time. Great fun talking to you. You bet. You too. Oh, isn't that fascinating? I love it. And um, just folks, everyday life, what great advice. You know, they're just your everyday person. They're not here to get you. Just try to remember that. Remember, too, that you're an independent agent. You're strong. You can think. Gather more data. We'll take a break, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it, it is. It's it's so easy to immediately, you know, kind of go to the that fearful place. To know that conspiracy theories, it's a normal, it's a normal concept, right? It's your brain being dynamic, being adaptive. The last thing your brain needs, it thinks, is to just trust everybody because then all of a sudden, boom, you're dead. So remember, your brain's got a purpose to keep the body alive. And if if believing in certain theories that are out to get you keeps you alive, and remember, your brain's not going to collect all the data. It's just going to collect the data it needs to support its point. And it then becomes self-fulfilling, right? So and the other thing I found out in working with clients, it, it, the brain doesn't always go back to make sure of accuracy, if I believe in the Benghazi, uh, the Benghazi uh, cover-up as a as because it was two months before an election. If I if I believe that, then and I'm still alive, then my body thinks it's right because it's working for me. Now it might stress me out. It might make me exhausted. Whatever. It might lose elections for certain people. But um, in the end, it's natural. It's natural for your brain to believe a conspiracy especially if the conspiracy is something that it can't control and because it does give your brain something to do, which is to think about it, right? So just notice your own brain. Notice your own thinking. And remember, one of the fastest, best ways to get through that is to gather more data. As the good professor Boss just taught us, keep, you know, keep reflecting on the information. Let more data in. The greatest disinfectant is sunlight and uh, and again, let's let's be a little more relaxed with people that do believe certain things. I mean, it makes sense that you might not trust the government if all of a sudden they're trying to take your land away. That makes sense, and it scares you. So you need the story that they're out to get you. And you know, some cases they might be. So um, anyway, interesting stuff, folks. Uh, conspiracy theories. We've all got we've all got it somewhere in our lives. Whether it's not believing or trusting the neighbor, or not believing your government. Just be careful, right? Open-minded, a little bit more. We'll take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back for a whole new hour in just a minute.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you and happy, happy Internet Day. Ah, Internet Day. According to Homer Simpson, it's here to stay. He thinks it's a pretty good chance it's going to stick around. Kind of a Mm long-term, multi-year situation. Yeah, it's it's here. All right. It's here to stay. So happy Internet Day. Also, happy Cat Day. Uh, Not the other white meat. Cat Day to celebrate. And this is the the exact line. Um, Cat Day was first created by Colleen Page, a strong animal welfare advocate, to bring attention to the plight of the domestic cat. The plight. Yeah. Well, there is... What is the plight? The cats that aren't in a home, that are just running around the neighborhood, that's not the best situation for them. No, no, no. That's not. So, yeah, there's a a plight. There's a plight for a domestic... But I would call that just a a feral cat, right? Just a cat without a home. Yeah. A homeless cat, right? That sounds like I'm, I'm like from the 70s. Dude, that's a homeless cat. That's a homeless cat. That's a man without a home. But I don't know. It seems to me of most – like of all of the domesticated animal kingdom, cats have got it the best. The ones that have a home, absolutely. You know what I mean? They have their own bathroom. The, yeah. Okay. They have a box in the corner. They yes. have a box in the corner that gets cleaned out. They pretty much don't have to do anything. There's no expectation on a cat. No. Just sit there. Like every dog, you're like, okay, fetch. And you expect that dog to know what you're talking about. The cat, you're like, no one plays fetch with the cat. The cat doesn't even have to bathe. They don't ever get a bath. Well, they they lick themselves. Oh, so they say. Well, you watch them. I don't. They're not shy about it. (laughs) Dogs, though, get thrown in the tub. They look ridiculous after they're getting, after they're all wet. Then they shake and you got to clean the entire bathroom. Yeah. Anyway, so happy cat day. All these reasons are why I don't want a pet. <laughs> because my, my my wife sent me a picture of this dog. Oh, she's She goes, to... oh, this would be a great dog for <gasps> your kid. He would love this dog. And I go, yes, he would love the dog. Mm-hmm. Then dad would take care of the dog. Yeah, And oh, then the sure. things, the, 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 the level of planning I would have to do just to mow the lawn. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Don't I don't do want to deal no. with I did this as a kid. No. I don't want to do it again. No. Unless, yeah. You don't want that. Unless you could get a dog that doesn't leave piles. If he could use a box in the corner. Oh, wouldn't that be great? I would I would love to teach my dog to just use the toilet. Yeah. Go in there. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then you know you'd be waiting in line out there like, come on. Yeah. How long are you going to take? He's in there <laughs> reading his paper. Hey, um, uh, speaking of uh, you know falling in love with something, today we're going to be talking about – Love. Is there, when you think about it, are there enough men, healthy men, let's say, to marry enough healthy women? Are there enough on this planet? Because you may have a friend that you think is fantastic and they can't find a date. They can't get a date. And they always say, there's just not enough good people. There's, there's not enough. So we're going to be talking about... All the good ones are taken. Yeah. Dating meets economics. The numbers, they may not line up. So it might mean either a lot of single people or other problems. Or maybe if it's that important to you, you need to move 
to where the numbers are more in your advantage. Uh Uh-huh. Alaska. As you talked about previously on another show. Yeah. You need the numbers. You need to go 20 to 1 and and just go on 20 dates to find that one. I told my son, he he wants to get – he wants to date and get married. And I'm like, great, 300 dates. Yeah. He's like, what? (laughs) Are you serious? I'm like, well, yeah, they don't – they could – you need 300 dates. On your 300th date, you'll get married. Now – that did, wasn't how my situation worked. Well, how many days did you go on? Basically none. Yeah, well, you're a freak. Yeah. Didn't you really? You hardly dated. Not really. I was so busy. Yeah. I was working late nights. I was tired. Well, by the way, even a blind squirrel. It seemed like a hassle. <laughs> I have to like primp and like, you know, yeah. put, put forth some Wax. sort of public persona. Totally. To, I'm like, I but just. You're shy. You're a shyish guy. And I'm shy and I was just kind of resolved. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm <laughs> happy where I'm at. My. You know, just I was good, and then all of a sudden, this woman came up to me and said, "Would you like to go out with me?" Wow! And I went, "Yes, I would." And She's, then... she was forward and aggressive. <laughs> See, but that's perfect for you, yeah. Because you never, if not today, you would probably. But it's just that's... have heart disease and be playing video it's games. It's just that situation, yeah. Right? Yeah. Any other situation in life, I'm okay. I can step in. I can take care but of things. See, that, that's but a great when example. It, when it gets to the sort of romantic thing where the person is, yeah. in my mind, instantly judging everything about oh, you, yeah. and when they say no, it's because you are the worst person on the face of the planet, mm-hmm. I can't take that crushing defeat, so I just left it alone. But, <laughs> and then you happen to find the one woman that would search you out like a heat-seeking missile yeah. and blow your heart up. That was my parents when they heard about that. They're like, finally. That's right. See? Your parents are like, it's a gift from heaven. <laughs> <laughs> little Terry's, little Terrell's getting married. It's such a blessing. My mom was like, I knew there was somebody. My dad was like, seriously? And he's talking to her like, you realize what you're doing. This is who this guy is. Look, you don't even know my son. <laughs> Come here. Let me show you he something. He is a complete jerk. <laughs> I think that's great. I'm looking at my dad like, you're sabotaging me. Knock it you're off. Like, Ixnay on the talk, eh? <laughs> Um, hey, uh, by the way, the debate last night. So sp- speaking of finding your love, mm-hmm. people are in love, according to some of the uh, pundits today. On Politico, Rubio's team was visibly elated after having gotten the better of Bush in the third straight GOP debate. So they're basically saying Rubio won. New York Times said a small but diverse sampling of commentary across the Internet found many people declaring Senator Marco Rubio of Florida the winner. Fox News even said, in conventional terms, Senators Cruz and Rubio won Thursday night's debate. They were both quick, smart, focused, and passionate. The majority of the candidates had about four or five minutes total of speaking time across the two hours. Jeb only had like four and a half minutes. minutes. These two had how much? They had – Rubio had eight. I'm not sure how the rest broke down. But it just – Trump was in the middle when it came. He was about five minutes. So you had to capitalize on every second. I think it was. I think it was a fascinating debate. I think the losers, far and away, CNBC moderated. And then Jeb said something about a warm kiss for Democrats if yeah, they in fact, cut budgets. We, or we probably ought to play that. Play clip four. Biggest tax increase happened under the watch of Barack Obama, and spending's gone up. You find a Democrat that's for cutting taxes, t- cutting spending, ten dollars. I'll give him a warm kiss. What's that? You know what? That you don't say. No. Because there, all of a sudden, some guy in the Democratic Party in Congress stood up and say, I'm for it. <laughs> Excuse me? M- Mr. Bush. See, the, the thing. <laughs> I'm totally for it. 
You know, you know, his staff was in the back room going, "What? What did he just say? What do we have to now apologize for? Uh, can what you do we imagine have to spend? Like, no, Jeb, Jeb, no, no, Jeb. Can just you? drive into the wall here. And by the way, it wasn't even a kiss. It was a warm kiss. A warm kiss. <laughs> Ugh. Just anyway, kind of weird. I, I, I don't know. I feel bad. I, I honestly just personally believe deep, deep, deep in his soul, he wants to help. He wants to serve. But he really just wants to get back to his life. He's like, Don't you think? He's it, a good guy. He wants to it serve. It feels that way, yeah. He just feels like – and then I'm telling you, Cruz, Cruz is a great debater because if he – did you hear his rant? Let's, let's play um, uh, clip one. This is not a cage match. He made this and up, you look apparently, at the right now. Donald right here. Trump, are you a comic book villain? Ben Carson, can you do math? John Kasich, will you insult two people over here? Marco Rubio, why don't you resign? <laughs> Jeb Bush, why have your numbers fallen? How about talking about the substantive issues people care about? So, I love that. Will you insult two people over here? Because <laughs> that's kind <laughs> of what exactly. they were asking. But what's so funny about it is three or four of those points came right there from that moment. Yeah. Very few people on that stage are that good of debaters to just make that up right there. And he turned it. Yeah. It was, I well, mean, that was brilliant. You, you got to be quick on your feet, yeah. right? He's, he's the guy that did the filibuster shutting down the government. That's and true. if you listen to the topics he covered in that, they were, you know, he's just thinking off the top Boom, of his head. Ba-doom, ba-doom, ba-doom. And so, I mean, at one point, I think he was reading Dr. Seuss or something. He was just coming up with ideas to just keep talking. In fact, another one that I thought did really – I want to hear more from is um, Kasich. And, he, and there was a moment in there where he went after Trump about his experience. We, we cannot elect somebody that doesn't know how to do the job. You've got to pick somebody who has experience, somebody that has the know-how, the discipline. And I spent my entire lifetime balancing federal budgets – Growing jobs, the same in Ohio, and I will go back to Governor? Washington with my plan, Governor, and I will you, present it within a hundred days, and it will pass. I mean, uh, you know what I thought that night? They just need to get somebody needs to get elected, and I don't know if it's any of them. I don't know. I really don't know. Somebody needs to get elected, and then they need to put every one of them in a certain position to do what they do best. Like I'd put Kasich over, I don't know, the Treasury. I'd put them over something, well, the, I don't know, wherever they create the budget, the budget department. <laughs> I'd have him over budgets. I don't know. It's just, um, it was fascinating. CNBC, I don't know, they stepped in it. Yeah. That got weird. You can't be booed. I mean, I get it. I get that it was a Republican audience. But if the entire discussion is about the media and CNBC and people are booing you in the middle of your question. You've gone too far. You've probably gone too far. Yeah. Back it down. Um, but uh, let's do this. Let's get to the headlines. Terry, you got anything in the news? Yesterday, we uh, saw the story about the NORAD blimp that lost its tether and started floating around the Northeast. After three hours on the loose, the escaped U.S. Army blimp reportedly grounded in rural Pennsylvania. According to the state police, Governor Mike Huckabee used the blimp story to make a point during the debate. If you saw that blimp that got cut loose for Maryland today, it's a perfect example of government. I mean, what we had was something the government made, basically a bag of gas that cut loose, destroyed everything in its path, left thousands of people powerless, but they couldn't get rid of it because we had too much money invested in it, so we had to keep it. That is our government today. It was pretty good. Great metaphor. Yeah, he worked it quite well. A bag of gas. The untethered blimp is actually an early, early warning system for if anyone decides to launch a cruise missile missile from the Atlantic into the U.S. It would detect it, and we'd know what, I guess, have an early warning and 
have some other technology to knock it out. But it was uh, pursued by fighter jets across the, the Northeast. Eventually, it deflated, fell into a forest area, and it's been recovered by the military. So that's the story of the blimp. Republicans officially nominated, nominated Paul Ryan as their candidate for Speaker of the House Wednesday. Following weeks of uncertainty, there will be a floor vote today, expected to be... Uh, unanimous or at least he'll have clear sailing to the speakership one of the good news that he has walking into that office the house overwhelmingly approved a bipartisan budget deal that brings a more harmonious end to john boehner's reign as speaker of the house the measure approved 266 to 167 helped eliminate a default a possible default on the uh, federal borrowing limit that makes it so paul ryan doesn't have to worry about the budget till 2017 so he has time to actually get ahead of yeah. uh, this constant kicking the can down the, the down the road type of situation that we've been doing to keep the budget and keep the country funded. Authorities are looking for a pilot of a drone that flew into power lines Monday in West Hollywood, knocking out service to hundreds of South Carolina power customers. Uh, witnesses report seeing a drone buzz into the wires around 1.15 in the afternoon, knocking uh, was uh, knocked to the ground. The drowned the uh, the drowned the drowned. The drowned, drowned, drowned. See, now we have to come up with a whole yeah, new droned. way of speaking. He done droned about. me. So you fly the drone into the power lines. It, it cut off 700 homes. They're Ooh, searching geez. for it. This just goes to federal mandates on who can fly, where you can fly, yeah. and how you can fly drones. And this is another argument for those. So, oh, great. Great. More legislation on our now freedoms. we're going to have more bloated. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's um, interesting news. Crazy, crazy uh, day, and it was a busy day. Not even talking about the World Series. Holy cow. Don't give me that look. Ben's like all down and out or something. Come on, Ben. The Mets can't win everything. Kansas City's up 2-0 over the New York Mets. Mm. Crazy times. Hey, we're going to take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to be talking about dating and economics, right? Where dating meets the numbers, the economics. Turns out there really aren't enough guys out there. John Berger will be joining us. He's the author of a book on the subject, and we're going to be getting into this, folks. Datanomics. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you ever just get that feeling when people may say, you know, there are plenty of fish out in the sea, but there's some kind of epidemic going on out there that seems to be killing off the ones that may match the type of fish you want? Do you watch your friends who seem perfectly dateable, they're educated, they're kind, friendly, and driven, but they can't get a date? Well, our next guest today noticed this trend and decided to approach it from an economic standpoint. John Berger is joining us. He's the author of Datanomics, and uh, he's a contributor to Fortune Magazine, a former senior writer at Fortune and Money. He's an award-winning freelance journalist who's been uh, who's written for Time, Barron's, and Bloomberg, Business Week, you name it. And he wrote the book uh, Datanomics to address this issue of maybe the disparity in uh, our dating lives. John Berger, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me on BYU Radio. You bet. Thank you for being here, John. Talk about your your research. I mean, you, here you basically are a business writer, an economics 
probably expert by now after all the writing and learning you've been doing. What? Um, how did you come? How did you get the thought of combining kind of the economic models with the dating world? So how does how does a guy who normally writes about oil end up writing a dating? Exactly. Book? <laughs> okay. Exactly. Um, so the my, my last two employers were Fortune magazine and Money magazine, and. The editorial staffs at both Fortune and Money are disproportionately women. And I, I just I couldn't help but notice that all the guys, or most of the guys, seem to be married like me, um, whereas the women who, dating-wise, seem to have more going for them. Yeah. Uh, you know, most of them, them were single, and many of them unhappily single. And it just there was this disconnect that didn't make any sense to me. And so you thought, I'm going to study this. Where have all so, the men gone? So basically, I wanted to figure out why why dating was so hard for the women and so easy for the men. And I, I must admit that initially, um, I my initial thought was different from where I ended up. Initially, I thought that there was something about the job markets in very cosmopolitan cities mm. like New York or Washington yeah. or London or Toronto, L.A., whatever, that, that something about the, the labor markets there that attracted disproportionate numbers of women. Um, but I was wrong. The even Rural states like Arkansas and, um, and Montana tend to have um, even more lopsided dating markets. So, uh, really? so last year there were four women who graduated from college for every three men. And my argument is that this is spilled over into the post-college dating market for college grads. Uh-huh. So we now have 33% more women than men. That's – there you have it. Well, and, and and again, in the big cities, you're going to want the degrees. You're going to need – you're going to want the up-and-coming. And with a four-to-three ratio, it seems like you're always going to be uh, upside down. You, you, you somehow got a number 57 to 43 ratio. Talk about that. So 57-43 is the current gender ratio among U.S. college graduates. Um, and I, when you express it as a ratio like that, I, I, my feeling is that people don't think it's that big a deal. Yeah, no, that's not but, bad. But, but 57-43 means four women for every three men. Um, and if you think about dating kind of as a, as a numbers game, it, it actually it may start out four to three, but it gets worse for, for the women. So imagine you start out with a dating pool that has 40 women and 30 men. Once half of those women get married, the remaining dating pool for the singles becomes 20 women and 10 men. Oh, yeah. Um, so, it, so it goes from 1.3 to 1 to 2 to 1. So the longer you stay in the dating game, so to speak, the worse the, the gender imbalance becomes. Unless you, you go out of the educated pool and get somebody that exactly. isn't a college yeah, grad. Or, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously none of this would matter if we were all more open-minded about <laughs> whom we date and right. eventually marry. But what the research on this shows is that, that over the past 50 years, um, what I might describe as educational intermarriage has actually declined. Um, so we, college grads are, are very unlikely to marry non-college grads. Mm. For and this is true both of men and women, but for men, they don't really pay a penalty for this uh, because the supply of college-educated women is just so vast. Women, however, um, pay a high penalty because not only are they making it statistically harder on themselves to 
find someone if they're closing, you know, they're, if they're not considering working class guys, but they're also giving way too much leverage to the college educated men who know they're in demand and a lot of them act accordingly. Yeah. And so that's such an interesting concept because I guess anytime you, you have more specific segregated audiences, you might be seriously impacting your numbers, whether it's college educated or I mean, I know another thing that made a lot of noise like in the LDS world was because, you know, Mormons might want to marry Mormons. Catholics might yep. be looking for Catholics. So if you what happens in those cases, right, where you narrow to your own area, your own religion, and on top of it, you want an educated religious person? Well, th- throughout all religious groups, not yeah. just um, Mormons, um, men are more likely to be apostates. So men are more likely to leave organized religion than men. Right, uh, than, than women. women. Than women. Um, and and, and the, as you referenced, I have a chapter in the book that, that deals with, with Mormons in particular. But honestly, after the book came out, I received um, emails from evangelical Christians, yeah. from Muslims, um, from, from women of all sorts of, of religious groups saying that this has been their experience as well. Wow. Um, with, but with Mormons... I, I do believe that there is a kind of an exacerbating factor that widens the gender gap among among marriage age people, and and that is that the the, the age at which men are most likely to leave organized religion yeah. is kind of late teens, early twenties, and coincidentally, that also happens to be the age when um, Mormon men are expected to go on yeah, mission. They go on their LDS and, mission. They leave. Right, and. Um, you know, the, you know, I interviewed um, several, a bunch of uh, people who are much more familiar with the LDS world than I am, and one of the things that they told me was that 50 years ago, um, you, you, could, you could not go on a mission and still be active in the LDS church and have a leadership position, yeah. and, you know, it, was, it wasn't, like, encouraged, but, but it was okay. Yeah. Um, but today there's more... There's more social pressure on men to um, to to do a mission, and if they choose not to, as obviously plenty of men, you know, they want to get on with their work or their education. If they choose not to, there's enough stigma attached to that, um, and that, that that I think their their risk of leaving the church is higher. Yeah. And again, it's coming at a time when men are most vulnerable to leaving all religions. Well, and um, the women in the church might also be, uh, there might be some pressure for them to, to marry return missionaries or only right. return so, missionaries. So, right. so, yeah. so, you, yeah, so you're mean, kind of ostracized you, too, it might feel like. Right. So yeah, I'm sure you know better than me. I mean, you, you yeah. see these discussions about whether it's okay to marry a non-RM man. Right, exactly. Um, uh, and you know that that you know that stigma, you know, if a guy is already on the fence about about organized religion in general or the LDS Church in particular, that stigma might push them over the edge. Mm. And you see this in every, but in every type of faith, every type of religious group, there tends to be a disparity because whether Muslim or, or Mormon or whatever, the, the men tend to go to become less uh, enamored with the faith. They might fall away from the faith, which leaves a ratio of uh, more women that can't find a believing man. Yeah, women are more devout. Hmm. Man. And you wouldn't think, and I guess, so this is just, again, one subcategory, the religious faith. What are some other categories that also end up making it harder? 
for women um, to find their – I mean that, that narrows the, the ratio or, or actually broadens well, the weight ratio. Well, so, so geography plays a role here. And interestingly, Utah, if you just look at statewide data, Utah has one of the – you know, for women, from a dating perspective, has one of the better or less lopsided gender ratios among all states. Hmm. So, um, if you're a if you're a non-Mormon um, in Utah and you're a woman, I'm guessing the dating math it's hard. doesn't seem so bad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, but but geography matters. So in general, as you head from the East Coast to the West Coast, the dating math becomes a little more woman friendly. Huh. Um, you know, far and away, the best dating market in the country for women, just from a numbers perspective, yeah. is Silicon Valley. So the whole sort of San Francisco Bay Area, San Jose area. Really? Be, be, because the tech, because oh, because the there's so many industry, yeah high tech industry, exactly. so many men. So many men. Uh, it's really the only well-populated part of the country where young college grad men outnumber young college grad women by a significant margin. Hmm. But there are other cities like Denver, Seattle, San Diego, western cities where where the numbers are more balanced than what you find in New York or Washington or, uh, or Miami. Hmm. Man, fascinating stuff. We're speaking with John Berger, um, the author of the book Datanomics. It really it's it's uh, making some waves, but I think in a in a very uh, healthy and important way. We let's get real about the numbers and and at least understand what's going on. You know, the minute you're kind of segregating and and looking for certain types of people, college educated, religious, in certain geographies, it's going to impact the number and the ratios that you're going to be dealing with. We'll come back, continue our discussion of. Uh, you know, do the numbers meet up? Is there uh, a way to still find that love out there? Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. More right after after the break, right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You just need somebody to love. And apparently the numbers may not be working out for you, um, especially if you're a female. Our, our guest, John Berger, joins us. He is the author of the book Datanomics. He's also uh, been a contributor to Fortune magazine, and he's appeared on MSNBC, CNN, CNBC. He's all over the place. And he's talking about some research he has done um, about the ratio of men to women, of educated men and women um, in the uh, dating pool. Uh, the ratio he gives is about 57 men to, or uh, women to every 43 men, uh, which is a currently basically a ratio of four to three women to men. So, and then, and then you know, once you get a bunch of those get married and date or and get out of the pool, the, the ratio shrinks uh, even more. So, He's here to to help us kind of sort through this, figure out what we could do to improve our odds. John Berger, welcome to the welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. Hey, talk about what impact these ratios have on women. Like, what what are they doing? How does it impact their behavior? Are they doing things differently now because of the ratios? 
Well, I think everybody's behavior changes. So as I said, it doesn't just make it statistically harder to, to, uh, to find a match, but it changes the way men and women relate to each other. And a big argument in my book, Datanomics, is that the, the much-talked-about hookup culture, both among college students and in kind of the post-college dating world as well, that the, the hookup culture is largely a byproduct hmm. of these lopsided gender ratios. Um, and I know that you know, there was a, a Vanity Fair article on, on Tinder that got a lot of attention several weeks ago. But, you know, Tinder is only three years old, and, the, you know, the hookup culture preceded Tinder. Right. Um, so, um, and there's actually a long history of, a uh, silly history of people blaming the latest new technology for people having more sex. And back in the 1920s, um, the, the, some of the, the uh, folks of that era blamed the automobile. <laughs> Yeah, well, there were seats in it. There's a back seat, and it <laughs> but, but, and, and you could yeah, go to yeah, like but, lookout point. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, but, but what happened in the twenties? You know, it was it, that was also demographics. You <laughs> exactly. had ten million men who died during World right. War One. There was a dearth, um, yeah. and that created a, an imbalanced marriage market after the war ended. Does and, and I look at the numbers. So we're turning into more of, I guess, a hookup culture than a dating culture or a marrying culture. Is it is yeah. is that what's changing? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that most of the 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 social science on human sex ratios and how they affect behavior, most of it actually grows out of animal science, and um, it certainly appears as that as if human a lot of of these behavioral changes are in some ways an evolutionary adaptation because um, when zoologists mess around with sex ratios in a controlled population of some other species, you kind of see similar changes. You see, you know, species that are are typically monogamous during mating season that become essentially polygynous and yeah. the, you know, the men are mating with multiple, not the men, the, the males are mating with multiple females right. um, because the sex ratio has changed. So, um, I mean, I, I think some of this is hardwired, but that doesn't mean just because it's, it's instinctive, that doesn't mean yeah. we can't change. You got to go do that. Um, when you think about it, this is, it's, it is to think that this all started with you looking at your female coworkers and, yeah. and, um, you know, knowing you were married and had a family or whatever, and they're sitting there actively engaged in life, does it – what I guess is the answer? You know, what do you do with the ratio? Um, I, one of the arguments I know some make is it's not – it's always been a numbers game, but it's always – also there's people that are breaking the numbers and, and making stuff happen all the time. Well, uh, so I, I have a, f- a few ideas advice-wise. Yeah. Uh, and, w- and the first one really only applies to younger women, and that involves ge- geography. So if you're just starting out or you're just about to graduate from college and uh, you're deciding between going to work you know, for Microsoft in Seattle or Goldman Sachs in New York, and if you're marriage-minded, um, I'm not saying everybody is marriage-minded, right, right. but if you are, um, you, know, you might want to put the, the, the gender ratio of New York City versus Seattle on your on your list of considerations, right. but but at the same time, I, I understand that a, a forty year old woman with a whole life and a career in New York City is not going to relocate to Denver or Seattle just because the, the gender ratio. <laughs> That's is right. Um, so the, my other bit of advice, um, and I think this is the most realistic one, is that college educated women should expand their dating pools to include working class men. 
Mm. And, and honestly, I actually got a got a, a, a Twitter message the other day from a woman who told me that she met her husband after she unchecked the college grad box on her online dating site. Huh. And you know, I, I I do believe online dating makes this all worse because the children of the suburbs uh, don't think twice about checking off the college box, you know, when they're, right. when they're setting their di- dating profiles. And as a result, they never even see the dating profiles of people who did not go to college. That's right. Who also might be thriving in a, in a business. They might be, they might have, you know, they might be well-learned. They might be, they might have a lot of other gifts and skills. Oh, absolutely. I mean, based on how much I've paid my plumber this year, I'm sure he <laughs> makes more than I do. <laughs> you know that as a fact. Because <laughs> you are broke. Um, that is, it, it, it's interesting too. Like the online dating, we we make these decisions and we check a box, not knowing the ramifications of that. Like like I always tell my clients about dating is they just want to date someone in Utah or someone in you know the Mountain West or whatever. And I'm like, look, you need the whole dating pool to make this work. So broaden it out a little bit and open up to the biggest market, and then you can close it off later. You can always say no to a date after you've got one. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I just think that you know, the, this notion that, that we will automatically click with people who are just like us, and right. that's what people are doing when they're checking out boxes. Yeah. They're, they're, they're like describing themselves. Yeah, I'm not sure that's true. I mean, I, I don't think that, that people instinctively are, are inherently are most likely to, to click with somebody who is exactly like them. What, what, what are your female old co-workers, no, I shouldn't say old, the, your past co-workers, females that you, that you kind of were motivated yeah. to do this study, what do they all say about the book? Well, I, I mean, I, I think some of them find it life-affirming because yeah. I think, uh, you know, they didn't, I mean, they knew something was wrong, right. um, and, but they thought they were unlucky or maybe they were doing something wrong. Mm. And, you know, if you... If you've ever browsed any of the the more mainstream dating advice books that, that are out there, um, basically they do tell women that they're going about it all wrong. That if only you follow these 20, 20 rules, yeah. um, you'll get Mr. Right <laughs> within a week. Um, yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. Um, you know, you're returning his text message two hours too soon or two hours too <laughs> late, or you know, I mean, you, there's all sorts of advice that's put out there that like rationally like we we know it doesn't sound right but but you know there's some mystery to dating so people um <laughs> people assume that silly rules might actually work right um so so but to your question i i think i think most of my single female friends are glad to know that there is more of a of a demographic explanation for what's going on and it's not their fault Exactly, because they, they or and it's not them. A lot yeah. of people think it's me. That, uh, yeah. Something's wrong with me. But yet, you just all you did, and this is why I think the economics approach was incredibly helpful because it tends to be fairly just objective. I mean, here's just the data. I'm not making the data up, but you know, Silicon Valley is completely different than Manhattan. So deal with it and. Um, I, I don't know. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't seem like to just have more accurate information. Well, obviously, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, and, and two, if it'll get rid of some of the angst and the self-defeating beliefs that might also be contributing to some of these problems, man, more power to it. I guess in the end, um, you would just say, though, to, to let's just say the average person in Chicago, the female yep. um, that's up and coming, struggling, I mean, succeeding, but struggling in her dating life, um, you would say go west, go west. What, what would you say, John? Well, I, 
I mean, I mean, if she's 23, I think going west is more plausible than if she's 43. Because, yeah. you know, I, I, I mean, I'm in my 40s. I'm not going to pick up my whole life right. and move unless, unless I really have to. And, and I, I, so I, I don't think the, the move west thing is really uh, likely going to work for somebody who's older. Um, but I do think, you know, um, I, I keep going back to the – Education yeah. level. I do think people should expand their dating pools to include um, uh, people from you know who did not go to college. And you already see this actually in the African American community, where the gender gap um, is even wider when it comes to college graduation. Huh. Um, Pew Research did a study a couple of years ago, and it shows that educated African American women are much more open-minded about dating lesser educated men than the rest of us are. Hmm. Um, and I believe that the African-American community is kind of at the leading edge of what we're going to see more broadly. I'm, I'm predicting an increase in what I call mixed-collar marriages, which would be um, educated women married to working-class guys. And, and do you see any, I, I mean, potential problems of that? I, to me, it just seems like we're all surviving and even thriving. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean I've gotten some pushback on this, particularly from, you know, um, I did a radio interview with a woman in, uh, in uh, South Carolina, and she said to me, well, but I need a guy who wants to go to theater, or wants to go to ballet with me, and is a, is a guy who didn't go to college going to want that? And my response to her was, well, okay, I have a master's degree, and I hate, you know, I'm going to tell you the last thing I want to do is go to, go to the ballet. Right. So, so right. this may be... This may be less about education than it is about, you know, men versus women. I, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Matt, do you no. like going to ballet? Not, nope, nope, not at all. <laughs> not at all. But isn't that interesting? But so then it's, again, it's, it's, it's kind of a selection thing. It's, it's a need you think you have. And yet, um, I mean, if, if you were desperate enough, it probably wouldn't be a critical need. The ballet is well, not I, a critical I, need. I, I, th- I think some women attribute to education or like think an educated man is going to you know be different from the average man right. and I, I i don't think college education makes you a better husband or a better no. wife no i think and you're I think right people attribute too much to that no, i think that's and that's a great thing to leave it on john because i really we make major assumptions and that's again it's like economics we have to make assumptions anyway and but if we can get the right data and then and try to not keep creating like exclusionary criteria to get rid of people. Um, broader audiences, more open um, groups. I think it's helpful. John Berger, great work there on datanomics. I'm sure you you made a little a few people mad, but that means you did something <laughs> right. Good job, well, John. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for being on the show. Appreciate it. Keep up the great work as well. Um, I, I love the information, and I use it in my uh, own business. And we'll, we'll take a break. We'll come back. I'll talk about some of the ways that uh, I coach people um, in singles using very basic principles like John's teaching us about the numbers. Stick with us. We'll do a little uh, Coach's Corner after the break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Doing a little coach's corner here on uh, the datanomics dating world. Um, 
it, John made a great point at the end. We, we think we we think we marry a college educated man, and we're going to have somebody who loves caviar and loves, um, you know, fine dining and going to the opera. But you're not dating an illusion. You're dating a real person, right? You're dating a human being, and. One of the rules, I guess I would say, is just remember, you don't need to make a decision until you're in a place to make the decision. So many times when I work with people, they tell me all of the things they don't want, and they're they're not even clear necessarily on what they do want because they know what they don't want, but they don't know what they do want. So when I work with them, I always suggest if if you're if you're going to date, and you're you're not finding people, you might want to get online. Oh, and they always like, I don't want to get online. I shouldn't have to get online. There's plenty of people I know, but you're not finding the other plenty of people you keep talking about. You, it's to me in my head. I look at it almost like a marketing game, where you have to get enough people by you because you're a great person. So once you get a certain amount of people in front of you, one of them's going to like you. Okay, fine, I'll do it. I'll get online. But I, I want to date somebody in my area. Well, of course you do. Who doesn't? But what you might want to do is cast the net to everyone in the country. Well, then I'll have to date someone in another state. You know what? You actually don't have to date somebody in another state until you get contacted by someone in another state. So let's just decide that then. I look at it as kind of a marketer. I want as many people to find me as I can. I can then start excluding people that I don't want. But get the, get the people coming. Have them start to see who you are. Get your skills better and better by learning how to deal with the people when they're coming. So I always say go nationwide. Broaden it up. Open it up. Now, what about the other criteria. Well, I want somebody that is of this faith. I want somebody that is of this faith. Okay, put that in there. But no, when you put them in there, you're going to have to keep your search broad in order to get potential people. I know that there are people from my faith that I will never, ever, ever meet because they live in Iowa. They live in Florida. I'm not going to meet them. But if I want to be having them in my dating pool, then I'm going to have to open up Iowa and Florida to my dating pool. By the way, remember, if you're going online to date, you're not actually dating online. Let's be very real. You don't go on a date online. You just meet people online. So all you're doing online is meeting people. Now, you could just meet them at the local pub. You could meet them at a party or a game or whatever you do to meet people. But if you're not meeting anybody, that's a problem. So I wouldn't just hate an online you know, site simply because – I don't know if I can trust them. Well, honestly, a lot of the people you're dating face-to-face, you can't trust either. You just feel safer with them because they happen to have pulled up in a car. Well, I'd be careful because you don't know what's in the trunk of that car. Maybe they have some duct tape and some rope. You don't know. In reality, we feel really safe at times when maybe we shouldn't. And a lot of times I think what we're trying to do is protect ourselves. So have as many people buy as you can. Talk to them. Use your online time if you're, or use like your dating time not just as finding the right person. It shouldn't be every night we either won or we lost. It should be what did I learn today that's furthering my ability to relate and be a great partner. 
Instead of spending all of your time looking for the perfect partner, what if you just got good at being a really good date? Well, then I'll never get married. I'll just always be a good date. Well, if you can get really good at getting dates and being a good date, I think dramatically it improves the likelihood that you're going to get married. Now, there might be some things you need to work on, but maybe blow up some of your preconceived ideas. I can't tell you how many times with my clients, they're all telling me everything that they don't want. And then I ask them, how is your dating life? And they're like, non-existent. Well, why don't you start broadening it out? And like John Berger was suggesting, maybe one of the things to broaden it out is college educated. Well, yeah, because that means he makes more money. Actually, not true. I mean, statistically overall, sure. But you're not dating a statistic, right? You're dating a person. So you could still have somebody that has an incredibly great job, makes wonderful money, has amazing free time, and might love to go to the opera with you and has the money to pay for it. And they never went to college. But you wouldn't know that if you didn't meet them. Again, we don't need to draw smaller circles and hope to hit the target. What I'd first draw if I was learning to throw darts or whatever, I'd draw a big circle and see if I can get the dart in the circle. Then I'd hone my skills and I'd, you could draw tighter and tighter and tighter circles until eventually you can hit a bullseye every time. Then all we need is 20 bullseyes and something's going to work. Makes sense. It's a skill, but it's also a gift and it's an ability. And some of this just all goes back to what's in your head. And if your head is to exclude and to, to just get it tonight and get our relationship to work now, you may be losing the, the long battle. That's the Coach's Corner. We'll take a break, folks. A whole new hour. One more left on this Thursday, Internet Day. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we uh, give you the information, the tools you need, the updates on the news. We're not, we're not news people, for heaven's sakes. We'll bring you the news. But in the end, we're going to also give you the deeper cut, the tools you need to grow a healthier, happier life. Welcome to the program. Today, by the way, uh, one of our great contributors, Heather Johnson, will be here. Hadge. You're soaking in it. She'll be here um, in just a few minutes to talk to us about overparenting. She'll be giving us the signs that you are overparenting, right? One sign, just so you know, if you have a 45-year-old child that lives with you <laughs> and can't do anything without you, hey, that's a sign you've overparented. You need to let them go. They need to be free. That's all I'm saying. And maybe they shouldn't be running for president. Um, We talked about, uh, you saw it, I'm sure, the great debate, GOP's third debate last night, also known as the CNBC beatdown. Was it a great debate? That's what what it's, it's a great debate. Okay. 
or the beatdown. Soon to be cage fighting. If they want ratings. I'm just saying cage fighting might work. It was interesting. Yeah, the CNBC uh, commentators, moderators were – a lot of people were disappointed. But many believe, according to you know, Politico and some of these sites, they're saying Rubio really – he did a great job. He He shined. He's getting better. Yeah. Uh, before it kind of sounded like he was hesitant. Yeah, he's he jumping in. He was unsure in. what he was saying. Now, now he's he's gaining steam. We'll see if he can continue the growth. He's gaining some steam. And Jeb Bush struggled a bit, uh, had it, a few. It helps when he gets to fight Jeb Bush because he's, he's timid and awkward and you can kind of jump yeah. in. And... It, was, it was a weird, it was just a weird moment, don't you think? So I, we're going to let Terry talk about the debate. I'm kind of debated out. So, but I did want to tell this story okay. because to me it's one of the great stories of all time. Um, a 21-year-old man, and you won't believe what his name is. A 21-year-old man is driving in his car, gets pulled over, and leads – actually leads the police on a high-speed a high chase that reached – topped out at 100 miles an hour. This was playing in his car. Up in the New York Finger Lakes region, Yates County Sheriff Ronald Spike says the chase started late Sunday when he pulled out when he was looking for and they chasing a man named Indiana Z. Jones. Isn't that cool? High speed chase involving Indiana Z. Jones. I don't know what Indiana's real middle initial was. Do you? Zebulon. Was it Zebulon? Yeah. Do you know that for sure? No, I'm just making stuff up. Anyway. The high-speed chase, eventually, uh, it started when he was trying to evade a traffic stop in Rushville, I guess New York, 35 miles southeast of Rochester. See, now again, all the details of the story, mm-hmm. guy speeding, they pull him over, whatever. Doesn't matter. But his name was Indiana Jones. But. That's the whole story. They had to use the strips to puncture his tires. How else could you get Indy? Right. He's not going to stop. He's got a hat and a bullwhip, separated snakes. For all you know, there was a big, like, rock ball just following him. Right, the boulder behind him, yeah. The big boulder. That's how it works. Mm. There's some guy, like, removing beating hearts, like in the Temple of Doom. <laughs> he pulled him over. He's got a beating heart in his hand. He's like, this guy handed it to me. I need some identification. <laughs> I don't know what well, happened. Will this heart do? I don't think the heart's going to do. <laughs> Um, sadly, too, a... Can you uh, think of his life, though, all the way through? <laughs> Indiana Jones, really? Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's sad. Did you hear about the Barnsley fan that was rescued? So Barnsley uh, is a it's a soccer club. In England. In it's England. about a third tier. So third tier. So not not even... So it's a third tier, smaller it's like club. double A if you're looking at minor league baseball in the United States. I mean, and who, who hasn't done this? This poor guy. I mean, really? Because this could happen, don't you think? Anybody. Anybody. This could happen. Any day of the week, this could happen. Uh-huh. I mean, it happens to Ben in the middle of the show. Right. It's the craziest. That, that's intentional. It's though. kind of embarrassing. No, it is? Yeah. Oh, you intend to do that? Because um, here's the story. The, the guy went to a game, a soccer game, and about halftime, he went to the toilet. He, he needed to use the restroom. Right? But who wouldn't? Right. You're and, there. You're there a long time. I mean, well, and you've probably consumed some... Beverages, yeah, and he fall. He fell asleep. <laughs> he fell asleep on the toilet. Now, now, how long do you think you could sleep on a toilet? Oof. It depends. I need some sort of 
place to rest my head, but well, hello, toilet paper dispenser. Okay, you just kind of lean Soft over. Soft and cushiony. <laughs> Most of the ones I see are metal, so I don't know how that would work. Seven hours. Wow. Seven hours later, so he felt really refreshed when he woke oh, up. Yeah. Yum yum yum. <laughs> Game was over. Building locked down. Totally empty. Cleaned up. Everything was clean. And he walks out, and he's now trapped in a stadium. So he has to try to sneak out of the stadium. Security alarms went off. Anyway, the firefighters arrived to find a man in his 20s standing on a temporary building calling for help. They had to get the ladder to get him out. He had no shoes on. Don't know where those went. He had a good game. He had a good sleep, apparently. And uh, he had no shoes on. He lost his mobile phone and his hat. Mm. Sadly, he was more bothered about his hat than uh, the fact that he had slept through, I don't know, half a day. Anyway. Apparently his team won that day too. So. Oh, did they win? Yeah. So. Yay. So you got the win. Well. Good job. So it could be worse. So anybody that doesn't <laughs> like the debate, you know, it could be worse. You can fall asleep at the game. Crazy stuff. And, um, uh, you know, we got to just get real. The Royals up 2-0. Yeah. The Mets, come on. We need we need the Mets to get in this now. Game three World Series on Friday. Cool. And then there's probably a game Saturday. See, now, I, I haven't looked, but do you put a game on Halloween night? Mm. I know yeah. college football is still playing. Yeah, I think I would. They're still having games. and That would tell me, that'd be some really great tailgating. You know, everybody Maybe. comes in a costume. You do trick-or-treating at the tailgate, mm-hmm. get some bratwurst, yeah. and someone dumps in some bunch Personally, of brisket or something. If it happened, I, what I would, I would just bring a blanket and a pillow to the game, and then I'd go take a little nap in the restroom. Okay. Not seven hours. No. Unless I mean, it was little... game one. That was five and a half hours long. Right. You could wake up and still have about five <laughs> innings to go. So Nothing wrong with that. Let's get to the headlines. Terry, anything going on in the news? Absolutely. Uh, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie gave his opinion on the third Republican presidential deba- debate this morning on MSNBC. First of all, he says the moderators didn't uh, just didn't do their jobs last night. They were biased. Their questions were biased. They didn't do their job controlling the debate either. It became some sort of a free-for-all, Christie said. In fact, Christie's opinion of the debate moderators from CNBC were angling for fights between candidates. He says they wanted us to kill each other. Could be. Many people want you to do that. Possibly. It just this depends. not a... Yeah. Cage match. Again, we talked about that. Fantasy football. During the GOP debate, CNBC asked Jeb Bush about the scandal surrounding fantasy sports leagues, and he went off talking about how his team's undefeated and his guy's doing this, and he talked about a bunch of stats. And uh, then at the end, he said the industry should be regulated in some way. Chris Christie, who's the governor of a state, New Jersey, with a sizable gambling industry, disagrees. We have $19 trillion in debt. We have people out of work. We have ISIS and Al-Qaeda attacking us. And we're talking about fantasy football. How about this? How about we get the government to do what they're supposed to be doing? Secure our borders, protect our people, and support American values and American families. Enough on fantasy football. Let people play. Who cares? Who cares? Fantasy football. It's a problem we should all care about. That's right. We've talked about that. So there, uh, there's investigations into it, but of course the governor of Atlantic City, yeah, don't, don't worry about it. Keep Just it coming. It Just keep it coming. Ted Cruz's decision to challenge the moderators and more generally the media has proved to be record-breaking. Mm. This is not a cage match. 
And you look at the questions. Donald Trump, are you a comic book villain? Ben Carson, can you do math? John Kasich, will you insult two people over here? Marco Rubio, why don't you resign? Jeb Bush, why have your numbers fallen? How about talking about the substantive issues people care about? All right, everyone goes nuts. Very populist type, uh, That's right. type answer there. According to Live Dial test, pollster Frank Luntz has been using a debate since 1996 to measure human emotion and feeling. Cruz, his tirade reached the highest score among viewers ever recorded, peaking at 98 out of 100. Wow. He says 100 means that every person in the uh, subject group would have their dials to, uh, or pushed to 100. They have a dial, uh-huh. and you twist the dial depending on how you feel were about what's being said. Were those only conservatives, do we know, in he, this group? He, he didn't give the demographics. There were 24 or 26 participants, and he said 24 of the 26 at that moment had the dial cranked as high as it would go. Interesting. Cruz said that what he said, he said what every conservative has been thinking, they really hate the moderators, Luntz said. He was talking to Politico in this interview. Yeah. Overall, Luntz told Politico that Cruz won the first half, Christie the second half, and Rubio did well throughout. Huh. So that's how, how his testing came out. As he goes off the emotion of the moment. Um, some quick hitter type news here. The House GOP officially nominates Paul Ryan for speaker. The uh, general floor House vote will happen later on this afternoon. The uh, de- the deputy from South Carolina that body slammed the student in class, the high school girl, he has been fired from his job. Uh, and China, we learned this morning, has ended their one-child policy, 35-year-old policy, restricting couples to only one child. Now, uh, because of China's aging population, the ruling Communist Party will reportedly now allow families to have two children. Oh, that's great. You know, that's going to change a lot of lives. Until people want three. Uh-huh. Then they're going to need parenting skills. Then they'll have to get their waiver <laughs> from the government. And- oh, the tangled web. Great job, Terry. We, um, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Heather Johnson's going to be with us. She is our, um, you know, one of our great contributors that comes on the show. She's going to be talking about uh, overparenting. You know, maybe maybe there's some signs that you need to back it down a little bit as a parent. Uh, we're doing this story for all of the Chinese that are now going to start having two kids. Double the fun, double the experience. Uh, stick with us, folks. We'll be talking parenting up next, right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us is Heather Ann Johnson. Hadge, we call her. You're soaking in it. You're soaking in it. She's one of the great contributors to the Matt Townsend Show. She is a professor here at on campus at Brigham Young University and um, has been doing that for 12 years. She's been teaching students the principles behind successful families and, import, and the importance of family spending time together. She also has a wonderful website, familyvolley.com. Got to go check that out. And Family Fun Fridays is a book she wrote in 2011, uh, soon to be releasing Family Fun um, Saturdays, Sundays, and Mondays. Sounds good. Those are good books. Yeah. The, it's a good. Those are, those are good days. That is a great day to write a book. <laughs> hey, uh, Hadge, how are you? I'm great. You healthy? You happy? Healthy. I, a little bit of a head cold. I've got one, too. Yeah. I, I don't know where it came from or I'm pretty sure it, it came from Ben. Well, Ben, man. 
Yeah, I tend to do that. So. He sent. Did, did you not receive the sample in the mail? He <laughs> so sends that's why I opened it. Yeah. There was that powder. Uh-huh. I wondered. That powder? Yeah, did, I wondered. Did, yeah, that's yeah, what did, happens. It did me in. But, yeah. but we're good. It's, you healthy? You yes. got a baby? How's your baby? She's great. You going to keep her? Yes. How old is she? She is almost 12 weeks. Yeah, you got to so keep him months. now. <laughs> it's too late. What'd you name her? Her name is Quinn. <gasps> Cute name. Yes. And Quinn. she is our fifth girl in a row. Wow. So we don't always get her name right. Yeah. Sometimes we call her somebody else. Yeah. But it's okay. Isn't that, but I like calling my children by every other child's name, and then I hit their name at the end. Right. You just. I, I do it for emphasis. You do. Don't you think? <laughs> yeah, and I kind of I don't I don't want to forget anyone. So I figure if I run through all five girls, oh, yeah. you know, they all feel included. And it's a lesson that everyone can have. <laughs> it's not always just a lesson for Quinn or who. No. It could be a lesson for everybody. Sure, for everybody. It's- Does <laughs> does. Oh, that's wrong. So my daughter's about to have a baby, and you know her. I do know her. You, you're her teacher, her I've favorite teacher. I've been thinking about her all month because I know October, right? Yeah, any, any day. Any day now. She's walked 26 miles with my wife, <laughs> and nothing's happening. And nothing's happening. By the way, I have a son right now getting his wisdom teeth pulled out. Really? Ugh. So you're going to have a lot to take – your wife we, is going to have a lot to yeah, take care of. She's having a very busy day. Does your son realize that the baby's going to trump his pain? Uh, yeah. Okay. We yeah. all kind of realize right. that, that we, we all know where we fit in the scheme of things. Right. Right now, you know your place for the yeah. next, uh, forever. That's right. See, yeah. so, so Sarah's my daughter. She's the oldest. And then I had five boys. Okay. And we all know that we all are not Sarah. Right. So she wins whatever she wants. There you go. Well, she's brilliant, first, talented. she is. This is very true. And your first grandbaby. Yeah, she, yeah that's it. And, you just, and we don't know what we'll call her, but maybe Quinn. There you go. There you, you go. You mind if we steal that? <laughs> I'll throw no, that out to Sarah, Sarah. Sarah, I like Sarah. That's okay. Sarah's, yeah, okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell her you, you're good. <laughs> We're with tight her. like that. Heather is here to teach us about uh, overparenting. Now, you've never done this, but some people overparent <laughs> their kids and they create little monsters. They do, little troublemakers. You got to watch out. We do. <laughs> and it's so funny. We overparent, especially this generation right now. We're starting to do this profusely all the time and we do it one out of convenience yeah why now explain that because that seems like it's not so convenient because to do all that work in the moment it's a lot easier for example to do everything for our kids so that we don't have to be patient that's true right so that we don't have to clean up a mess that they might make right. because they're learning and so those type of things keep us from allowing them to have the experiences yeah. that we need. But the other really funny thing about this is we have this we have this feeling that oh we overparent because I love you so much. Uh-huh. So I'm going to do everything. It's not a love you. I weaken you. It's it's exactly right. But the fact is, you know, we think we're overparenting to keep them from failing, to keep mm-hmm. them from hurting, to keep them from sadness. But the people we're actually trying to protect are ourselves. And when we overparent, we're actually trying to keep ourselves protect ourselves from having to watch our oh, children that's hurt. True. Or fail or run into failure. Oh, that is bad. That's pathetic. It is pathetic. It's selfish. It's totally selfish. It's selfish. It's selfish parenting. But but it's it's in the disguise of being selfless. It's exactly right. Because I just give nothing. I give everything. Right. And I take, you know, I take care of you. I take care of everything you need. I did all these things for you. And I called your teacher and fixed this. And I... But really, you know, all of this that we're doing, this overparenting, is actually to protect ourselves. Mm. And so we've got to monster. Ta- <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> we have to take a step back and realize that our children have to hurt. They have to feel failure. They have to know what it feels yeah. like 
to put all those things together and figure life out. So what we want to start doing is we want to have in the back of our minds, because parents often say, wait a second, if I do this, can I fix it? Right. We can. We can yeah. absolutely fix it. So they're it. not ruined forever. Not forever. Okay, But good. But you don't want to postpone yeah. fixing it. <laughs> but right? hurry. But let's hurry, right? That's right. So the first thing and reason why we can fix is because children are ridiculously resilient. I know. Isn't that great? They are so fantastic. And what a blessing, you know, that it is to know that these little people that we're in charge of will bounce back and they'll accept change very quickly. The other thing we want to do is we want to take a step back and say, with every parenting choice we make, is this helping raise responsible adults? That's right. It's a mantra. Put it in the back of your mind. Think it every day. Think it 50 times a day. Is what I'm doing right now helping to raise a responsible adult? If I do this, is it helping to them to become a responsible adult? And if we can keep thinking that, it will dramatically oh, yeah. change our parenting practices. Because what happens is overparenting leads to some really negative things for our kids. One, it really decreases their self-esteem and their self-confidence. When we do everything for them, they don't feel like we trust them. So true. Once you break those barriers of yeah. trust, you've really lost that relationship that we're trying to build with our kids. They don't feel like we trust them. And, and you don't because you won't even let them do something they could easily do. It's exactly right. And so as a result, they say, well, man, if mom won't even let me buckle my own car seat, which is like – Every three-year-old well, parent's and, nightmare. And if you're 16 and she won't. Right. And she still will let you buckle, <laughs> you know, put on your seatbelt. You're overparenting. Do you know, I was actually, as a side note, with a family not too long ago. And the mother has, they have a 14-year-old son. And they still put his toothpaste on his toothbrush. <sighs> tuck him in. Now, we're all for, you know, hanging out yeah. with our kids before they yeah, go to family bed. family time. And sure. We, we check on them yeah. once they're asleep. Even our son, who's 13 now. But she helped apply some deodorant and some toothpaste on some toothbrushes. <laughs> That's exactly how it went. Are you serious? And it was so hard. One, it was hard to not laugh, to oh, be sure, honest. Sure. It, was, it was a little bit comical. But I couldn't help but think, you know, we're, we're setting our kids up when we, may, when we do those things for failure to oh. not feel like they're worth anything, yeah. right? Can you see the day that he's married and he brings his right. deodorant to his wife? <laughs> Or says, hey, where's my deodorant as he walks in arms up and he's like – Little help here. (laughs) She's like, what are you talking about? She's going to start rethinking a lot of things. Oh, that's right. right? All the surprises that come after the honeymoon. So So, fun. So we're losing self-esteem. Now, that fundamentally is one of the most powerful things for our children. They have to believe in themselves because what they're about to face in life as they get older is so difficult. It really is and can be so challenging. They need to have the trust in themselves. And we're killing that. So that's something that hurts us right away. Yeah. A couple other things is the, is we eliminate opportunities for them to feel competent in their own abilities. And this ties in the same way and is very straightforward. But our kids feel less competent when it comes especially to dealing with stress. Oh, yeah. When we do everything for them. Because they've never actually felt stress. Right. Even if we go to hygiene, they need to be able to say, okay, right now in one minute, I have to shower, brush my teeth, put on my own deodorant and get some clothes on and get out the door because the bus is three minutes away. That's right. That's stress. That's everyday stress, right? right. And when when we're relying on that and don't feel like we can do and handle stressful situations ourselves. We bow out. We quit. So true. And so we're we're hurting them. There's also some great research that says overparenting leads to higher levels of anxiety and depression in kids. Now that's coming right from research and that's a really big statement. Yeah. So when we're starting to wonder why anxiety, depression, those levels are rising in in populations of children, we really can go back again to parents and say – 
oh, you've, you've got to give them some responsibility and some freedom to learn and grow and do on their own. It seems own. like we used to do it on the farm. It was easier because the farm taught you right. to just live and grow. And you you got to be on your own because dad's got to go do this part of the farm. You go do that part of the farm. Exactly. I'll come back and fix it if it, I'll help you understand what works. Right, right. And isn't it interesting if we use that farm analogy, they taught parents, taught the principles and skills that they needed. And then they sent them out to do That's their right. jobs, right? That's right. The parents didn't have time to walk them through yeah. every pasture, through exactly. every task. It was, these are your responsibilities. I'm going to teach you and empower you and then let them go do. Right? So true. And so that's what we're trying to do That's here. a more natural way. That's how nature would teach you to parent. It is. It's like go and fail. Right. <laughs> and I'll be back. I'll teach you what you can, but you'll make mistakes. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we don't send them out blind. No, they're not going to get we killed. We equip them. Right. It's like we give them all the tools yep. and then they get to go have practice using those tools. But don't you remember making a mistake – you were doing something and you knew your dad would come check on it and you made a horrible mistake, but you caught it and then you had to redo it and you hurried and redid it Absolutely. and you got it all and then you then he shows up. Right. Right. And you're like, see, I know it was great. It was, pretty, it was a piece of cake. But what's cool about that is you found it out, you figured you it did. out, you saved it. And solved the That's problem. That's a great life skill. Right. And we need that. I mean, we use those skills every single day oh, totally. as adults. And so we want to put them in those positions where we are. We're giving them the tools they need. We're not doing it for them. We're equipping or we're equipping them with the tools they need so that they can go fight the fight. Man, Hadge, you're good. Okay, we'll take a break. We'll come back more with Heather as we're talking about overparenting folks. You might be uh you might be hindering their growth just by, you know, tightening the lid a little too tight. A little on too that. tight, yep. We'll take a break. More with Heather Ann Johnson when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Heather Johnson is in studio with us. Hadge is her name. You can find her website, familyvolley.com. Familyvolley.com. She works here at Brigham Young University and uh, is an adjunct faculty member teaching about families and how to grow healthy, create strong, healthy families. She's the real deal. Hadge. We just like soaking her in (laughs) and learning everything we can. So Heather, um, talk more about overparenting. What are some other? What are some things we should do? What should we not do? What gets in the way? Sure. So let's talk about some signs that you're overparenting. Okay. Right. And I should say we because we all fall into this oh, if we're not boy. careful. Right. Every day. So a couple things. If you find that you're doing everything for your kids, you yeah. might be overparenting. You you, you are overparenting. overparenting. So here is what we follow. Here's the adage: If your child can do it for themselves, let them. That's great. Now, this gets tricky. I can hear it in my own head. And if you're listening, I know you're thinking it. You're thinking, if I let them do those things, I will never get out the door. I will never get anything done. But remember, we want to be the best parent we can. And the best parent structures a home life situation and an away from home life situation that allows time for their children to learn how to be responsible adults. That's so true. And so if our lives are so busy that we can't allow our children to buckle their own seatbelts when they're trying yeah. or to take 10 minutes to tie their own shoes. We need to downsize our lives. I'm talking about that today on another show. And I'm, the idea is if if I can't do it by myself, how am I supposed to go date someone? Right. How am I supposed to get married someday? Because my mom's not there to help me. 
ask this girl it's out. Exactly right. yeah. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. We're messed up if we do that. And so if that's a problem, if you're thinking, I don't have time for my child to do things for themselves, then we've got to take even another step back and we've, we've got to downsize. We've got to cut some things out. We've got to slow our lives yeah. down so that our children can actually learn and grow and be children that grow into, again, that's responsible right. adults. So if they can do it, let them. Now, the other question I always get when I throw this out to parents is they'll say, but wait a second, our daughter can use a fork and spoon, but in a restaurant, she'll make a huge mess, right? Perfect. Right. That's the place <laughs> you don't to clean make it. it up, that's right? right. You don't have to clean yeah. it up. And so we take that into account, but that's why our home and those four walls that belong to us are so powerful. At home is where we practice, is where they take extra time to learn. That way, when you get into the restaurant, they can start to learn and do it themselves without so much mess exactly. or so much time. And so use those home situations to teach. Allow them to do it themselves. Uh, I can remember very clearly being a kid, and anytime I had to spell a word I didn't know, I'd, I'd ask my dad. I'd say, hey, dad, how do you spell whatever? Yeah. Every single time he told me to go get the dictionary. Every single time. <laughs> oh, your dad's so lazy. He was, yeah. He would say to me, he hey, would teach you. go get the dictionary and look it up, right? Because that is something I could do it's myself. So now, we don't think much about it. And at the time, all I thought was, you know how to spell it. You could have already said it to me by the time I walk to the other room and get the dictionary out of the bookshelf. Right. Just tell me. But that teaches us. It taught me to problem solve. It taught me to seek out my own answers. It taught me how to spell. <laughs> we need those experiences. But your dad had to know... That you needed the experience. It's exactly, it's right. too easy to give it to you, right. and we just want to please you. I just want to make you like me. So I'll tell you right now. Right, and solve it fast. That's We're right. so concerned right now as parents about solving it quickly. Right, it's that instant gratification, and we don't necessarily think of it in parenting, but we do that. Yeah. We think, how can I solve it, fix it, get it right now? How can I get you to get in the car right now? How can I get you to stop crying right now instead of allowing them to have those experiences? So don't do everything for them. If they can do it themselves, let them do it themselves. Other things that might show you signs that we're overparenting. If we always think to ourselves that we need to fix our children. (laughs) Even that word fix implies obviously that something is wrong. If we parent from a standpoint that our children are automatically broken – we never actually see who they are. If we can't see them for who they are, we don't know what they really right. need. Yeah. And so we automatically put up that barrier. When we see them as, as needing fixed or broken, that they have a problem, we're trying to solve things instead of help them grow again yeah. into responsible It's adults. like development. So it's, you, we need to see them as developing. Right. They're, they're going through these developmental stages, not – not broken, not broken or needing fixed, right. right? So if you have that mentality or those words even run through your head as a parent, it's a really good sign we're overparenting. So we can take that step back. Yeah. Another thing we do uh, when it comes to overparenting is we talk more than we listen. Oh, for sure. Now, this is a really straightforward one, and we don't want to downplay the need for communication. It's vital in every relationship. But the fact is when we overparent, we are way too quick to offer advice and criticism to our children. That's not what they're looking for every time they tell us a story, right? right? right. When our daughter comes home and she runs through everything that happened that day, she's not looking for me to nitpick every situation. Well, why didn't you say this? Well, then did you do that? Well, how come this then happened? She's not going to tell me anything Mm -mm. anymore. So as parents, when we overparent, that's what we tend to do. We're constantly giving that feedback. So what we want to do is a really old adage. We want to do what we're going to just call wait. And wait stands for Thinking about why am I talking? Wait. Hmm. Before we say a word, think through 
why am I talking right now? So we're going to wait. We're going to say, why am I talking? And we're going to assess what's happening. Most of the time, 99%, we don't need to say anything. You know, that question men ask all the time to right. their wives. <laughs> why are you talking? No, but that doesn't spell wait. That's white. That's right. That's, that's what that is. That's white. That's a different model. That's the male model. But we want to take that's that step back question. and pause as parents. We are so quick to just to just shove them with these thoughts totally. and words. We don't need to say that much. So a question could be so much more valuable than an answer. So even if even if your child's asking you a question, right. don't answer it. Just think. Uh, think or even just ask another question that makes them right. either, either say more or answer their own question. Or answer their own question, figure it out themselves. Yeah. We don't have to tell them all the answers. We don't have to constantly be criticizing what they're telling That's us. That's it. Now, right along with that as a parent, we want to make sure we're listening four times more than we're talking. That's right. We always hear the old joke, right? We have two ears, one yeah. mouth. Listen twice as much as you speak. But as a parent, it's bigger than that. Double it. Four times the listening to the speaking. Yeah. We will notice amazing things happen in our relationships when we stop over-parenting our conversations with our kids. They'll start – they'll fill the void up. They'll start giving you more data than you've ever had. They will. And we will then be so appreciative because we'll actually know how they feel and mm-hmm. know what's their experience. And then you can crush them. And then, and then we can start criticizing because <laughs> now we know the truth. That's the problem. Every parent's like, then I'll get them. <laughs> then I'll get them. <laughs> so a couple other things we do that are signs of overparenting. If we're very concerned or overly concerned about our own appearance, mm-hmm. we're probably overparenting. What we mean by this in a lot of other areas, it's called personification. But what happens is as parents, we become very concerned with how we look naturally as a parent. Now, this is normal. Yeah. Our children are naturally a reflection back on us as parents. But when we become overly concerned with how we look, we start to control our children's every move. Yeah. We do it so that what they do or their actions make us appear a certain way. I see that a lot in sporting events where hustle, you yell at your kids, run. Right. Why? You're lazy. And you're think, the whole time you're thinking, do they think that I'm teaching my boy to just saunder back to the huddle? It's exactly right. <laughs> We're so afraid they're looking at us saying, geez, that mom, she yeah. doesn't even teach her kid how to play, how to exactly. hustle, how to work hard. Yeah. We do it in our marriages nonstop. Yeah. We do it with our family members. But with our children, when we start to worry about how we look too much as their parent, and we mean much more, well, it's included physical appearance, but a lot, the way they're behaving, we control oh, them. all the time. And we, we do it with them. our church. We do it with our, what they're wearing, their clothes, Everywhere. their demeanor. Right, right. I remember when our son was just a newborn and we took, I, we took him to church for the first time and the sweet little thing started crying. We're talking five, six weeks. Uh-huh. And as sad as it is to admit, it taught me a really good lesson. I couldn't get him to stop. Yeah, get him out, get him out, get him out. (laughs) And I had this thought that ran through my head. You have to stop crying because you're making me look like a bad mom. Interesting. That's real, though. It's real. It's very real. And it's taught me I rely, unfortunately, on that negative experience so many times. And I snapped out of it. It was a fleeting thought. But it taught me that if I'm not careful, I control – for the wrong reasons, in the wrong situations, oh. the wrong way. Because I'm worried. You're us. making me look bad. I'm that's a first-time right. mom. That's you're right. making me look bad. Don't Zip make me it. look bad. Right? That's when, I, that's when my wife would always hand the baby to me and say, right. he's now yours. Now he's making you look now bad. Now he's yours. He's your problem. <laughs> Heather, these are awesome tips. Um, they, do, will, they, will you be posting these tips somewhere? I can. Yep, I can put Where them Where are you going to put them? On your Facebook page or on your website? 
Either. We'll put them in both places. Familyvolley.com is her website, and just look her up. Heather Johnson. You don't go by Heather Ann Johnson, do you? Uh, I go by both. I, Heather Johnson will I get like you there. I like it here. Heather yeah. Johnson, you're the real deal. Familyvolley.com. Heather, thanks. Thanks Good for being here. Thanks yeah. for seriously making it easy. There you go. To understand how I'm ruining my children's <laughs> life. It really is helpful. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, they're up next. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping and Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to shoot it down to our good buddies down there at uh, BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going on in their neck of the woods. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matt. How are you today? Hey, oh, my Matt. heck. Look at you two. Who's driving the car? <laughs> We thought you were. Are you kidding? We so we got Brian Logan, Jason Shepard. Uh, they left you guys alone? See, there's some debate. Uh, we were told that, that this was, we were making history today, that that myself and Brian Logan will be, will be doing BYU Sports Nation today. And uh-huh. we were told that it was the very first time that both Spencer and Jerem have missed the same show. Yes. And now we're, we're being told that that may not be true. Oh, was well, the first time I've ever had We're the experience. We're going to go with it because I like being able to make history. I think, I think we, it's safe to say that. I mean, last <laughs> time it was it was Uncle B and Uncle Dave um, here, and they kind of— It wasn't they, the same. Yeah it, was, yeah, it wasn't the same. They kind of just freestyled here and there. And, but know, now, now we've, got the, we've got really the, the, some real legit strong replacements. Right, we've we've had we have people here in these seats that have had experience. That's and right. I think that's what 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 makes the difference here. Now, do, can, what, why it's history? Now, Brian, can you tell us where they are? Did they go somewhere? Have they been abducted? Is this an alien thing? Um, I never ever ever know where Jerem is at. Yeah, Jerem. Um, yeah. Even when he's with you, you're like, I, where I, are I, you? Right. <laughs> I know he usually goes out of out of town, out yeah. of state, and does fun things. Um, Spencer is having or had a baby. Yes. So he's probably sleeping um, right now. No, let's uh, let's be know. clear. Spencer's wife had the baby, right? She is. She indeed is the one that had the baby. <sighs> Little Jet Linton. Jet. That's you, a great you, name. You want to know something that's what? very cool? What? Born at five thirteen a.m. Yeah. You want to guess how big? Uh, five thirteen. Yes. Mm-hmm. <gasps> How weird is that? Five pounds thirteen ounces at five thirteen a.m. Today we talked about conspiracy theories, so I'm pretty sure that's a conspiracy oh, theory. Oh man, yeah, I would say that if you but that one can born, be proven. If you that's born true. Something like that. Like, with that, I, I think you have a special destiny. Or something. you totally I do. don't know hey, what it is. By the way, the name Jet—that's a great name, especially considering that there was a blimp that was floating around yesterday. And I'm pretty sure if if the the baby had been born yesterday, they would have named it Blimp. You know, I, I would not want to be named Jet if I was slow. Yeah, what if you're pokey? Yeah, if I was fast, <laughs> if I was fast growing up, then then yeah, then, then be... you were you had jets, right, Bry? Oh, Jason's man. fast. I I've seen Jason run down the hall. Yeah, I, uh, but that's usually when I'm when I'm late for something, and so it's just sheer terror that gives <laughs> like, me the speed. I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get fired. <laughs> See, the only thing that would have made that even that story even better is if it had been May 13th. Ah, uh, that was 513. 513. That would the trifecta. That's all you would have needed. Hey, here's what's, a question. What's, what's more weird, Spencer's 
son being born 513 on 513 or me and my dad having the same birthday? Mm, I've never met your dad, but I'm going to go with your dad. <laughs> that's, that's, that's weird, right? That is weird. That, that is, is weird. Yeah, that's yeah. weird. These yeah. people need to plan ahead for stuff like that. What's, what's, even, what's even worse is, or I, I would say th- make things more interesting, is that my due date was a couple weeks before, which was on my mom's birthday, April oh, wow. 24th. What is the deal with and, your and, parents' and, mating you know, was, schedule I and birthdays? I ended up being late, and I ended up being on my dad's birthday, so she was not excited about it. Not that. excited. Now, it, ruined, it ruined a good birth. It, it did, yeah. Hey, did you guys know that, um, that uh, today is Internet Day? And it's National Hermit Day. It's the day you should take a break, hide away from everybody uh, in some shack up in the mountains, grow a beard, and write up a manifesto. Mm. National Hermit Day. You can't do all that in one day. I'm just going to dress up like Obi-Wan Kenobi because that's what they called him, the old hermit. The the old hermit. That's so true. Hey, did you guys happen to watch the World Series last night? I did. What's yeah. okay? So what's the deal? Why are the Royals doing so well? I thought the Mets were like this this team of destiny. Well, when when I can't speak to that, I didn't watch the game. The the pitching staff for the Mets is what everybody was talking about. Okay. They have been so dominant, yeah, and they haven't been as dominant. Okay, um, they they they're used to striking. They're used to striking the opposition out, and Kansas City strikes out the least. Oh, that's it. In so, Major yeah. League Baseball. Yeah, it's, so you're it's dead. Just, and hey, and it's all about getting hot at the right time, and yeah. the Royals um, the Royals are that team. That's, that's what it is in, in, every, in, in all sports. I, I think people really underestimate momentum. I and, agree. And, and being able to be consistent and being able to roll um, with the ups, but – you know, not letting the lows affect them either. And and there's so many times where a team can be hot and they can have maybe a bad inning or a bad two quarters, whatever the case is, and then they can they can literally fall from that point on. But the best teams are the ones that can w- ride out that wave and pick up, uh, you know, right where they left off with yeah. that momentum train. Did you guys hear about, speaking of bad momentum, um, online court documents show that John Litton, 69, was arrested after um, the seventh annual Stone County uh, Monopoly tournament in Branson, um, and apparently it went sideways, and the event organizers s- asked Litton to sit out this year's tournament due to unsportsmanlike conduct in 2014. That's when officers say Lit- Litton started throwing, uh, started fighting with others in the room. For a monopoly, a monopoly content. tournament. I just assume maybe he tried mm-hmm. to collect his two hundred without passing go. Yeah, he did and that, that just, too. That, that was the yeah. that was right. it. And he, he was he lost. He it. had a beat down with a top hat, and all of a sudden <laughs> uh, he now faces five counts of assault and disturbing the peace and trespassing. And he's not going to be allowed to be the banker for three more turns. Wow, was it worth it? His not power worth has it. been stripped. <laughs> his was power has officially it been stripped. Worth it? <laughs> it wasn't. Hey guys, are you uh, going to do the show today and have guests just like Spencer and Jerem do? It is the exact same format, wow. just two different uh, voices and or faces. I think, by the way, ruggedly good looking and incredibly deep, nice, luscious voices. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> the, the, the deep, dark, sexy. Yeah, uh, baby. A little. Uh, yeah, a little love. Little li- love, Jones. <laughs> what's uh, What's on the show today? <laughs> We we have a former BYU quarterback, BYU great John Beck joining mm. the program. Sweet uh, sophomore forward for the BYU women's soccer team, uh, Maddie Lyons will join the program, 
And uh, one of the news items yesterday was that BYU and Southern Utah had scheduled a football yeah. game next November. That's cool. Uh, we actually just taped an interview with the athletic director uh, for the Thunderbirds. So oh. we'll have all three of those guests on the program today. I mean, the, the Thunderbirds, it's not, it's not Wagner, but it's pretty close. They're, they're going to be better, right? Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're a lot better. better. Yeah. And you know what? And, and Brian feels the same way. If you're going to play these games, make it a local team. That's right. Exactly. That's what I was saying. And then all of a sudden it'll get exciting and people will be jumping on it. And we all know somebody in the game. Well, guys, uh, great show. Good luck to you. Jason, Shepard, Brian, Logan, knock them dead. Okay, do, do, a, do a great job, okay? You never know. They might need you to replace regularly. fantastic job. Maybe Spencer's going to have a ton of kids. You never know. You could be on regularly. <laughs> Good luck, guys. Thanks, knock them dead. That's cool. We need replacements. That's what we ought to do. Is So when I, need to, when I take a bullet and I'm, I'm out, we need somebody to replace me. Maybe for you, but I'm too easily replaceable, so I'm I'm against that idea. Well, you're not replaceable. I mean, your mother loves you. I mean, on the show, totally. Oh, yeah. No, you're not. Uh, (laughs) By the way, a couple uh, little news updates here for you. One thing, a lot of people are wondering, where's Kathy? Where's Kathy? And uh, I, I was just thinking today, we haven't told you because behind the scenes, we're trying to figure things out. Um, but Kathy uh, has an opportunity with her mom. Her mom um, just needs a little bit more of Kathy's time. So Kathy, as the incredibly wonderful, loving daughter that she is and human being that she is, she needs to take some time away to go be with her mom and get her mom settled and established and happy and healthy. She was having some health issues. So uh, Kathy is um, on extended service duty with her mom and uh, she'll still be involved some way with BYU radio, BYU television. She's, she's a wonderful woman. So don't think, you know, we just, she just disappeared. She's still um, alive and kicking and we love her and um, we'll get her back. We'll get her back one way or another. Before we move on to our final story, I wanted to just talk to you about a few other things. You may have uh, heard about a drone that was carrying hacksaw. Listen to this hacksaw blades, drugs, and phones. To, a, to the Oklahoma State Penitentiary, and it crashed. <laughs> like, talk about bad luck. The drone had hacksaw blades, drugs, and phones, and it was trying to go over the razor wire. When it ran into the razor wire, I guess it got caught up there and it lost control, and it crashed before the prisoners could get the contraband. Man, see with drones, they're getting in the way. They're getting the, eventually you'll be able to just call apparently you'll be able to just call Walmart and order up your hacksaw blades and they'll just send them right over. <laughs> Red Rover, Red Rover. Walmart will send a rover over and they're going to drop whatever you need, you and your cellmates need. Anyway, watch out for that. Um, also, you may have heard of this crazy story out of uh, Michigan. When Joyce Kingsley heard kaboom while at her Michigan home, she immediately thought about extreme weather. The 83-year-old needed to look up a Ford, and when she did, a Ford Mustang was parked on the roof of her home. After the driver had a medical problem on Monday and lost control on the interstate, Kingsley's home is about 20 miles northeast of Lansing and is built right next to a hill, and the roof is nearly level with the ground. And apparently, state police said the Mustang went through several bushes and trees and a fence before stopping on the roof of this poor woman's home. 
The driver was treated for low blood sugar and nobody was hurt. Except the neat thing, I think personally for Joyce, she now has a new parking stall right on top of her roof. Crazy, crazy story. Again, you thought you had it bad. Holy cow. It could be worse. People could be parking on your roof. And uh, finally here, folks, last but certainly not least, you know, we always like to end with a, uh, a hero story. And our hero today would be high school students from Michigan, students from the University of Detroit Jesuit High School and the Acad- and, and Academy volunteered as pallbearers for the funerals of three homeless veterans. Wanting to ensure that every veteran is buried with dignity and respect, a group of uh, Michigan high school students is acting as pallbearers for the homeless military veterans who otherwise would be put to rest alone. The University of Detroit Jesuit High School and Academy started the new service initiative in October, allowing students to give back in a meaningful way. More than 50 students have signed up for the first training and more students plan to be trained in November. Two funeral homes in the Troy, Michigan area have been working with the county medical examiner's office to give deceased veterans whose bodies are not claimed by relatives after 90 days a proper burial at Great Lakes National Cemetery. Dignity Memorial Network's Homeless Veterans Program provides the caskets, and now that there are pallbearers, everything has fallen into place. So for you great students uh, at uh, University of Detroit Jesuit High School and Academy, we salute you and we thank you for your service and your willingness to be our heroes of the day. Folks, everybody deserves dignity and everybody deserves um, peace and a peaceful place in this world. So let's open up our circles. Let's uh, let more people in instead of pushing more out. Again, we can't do the show without you, but we're on again tomorrow, uh, bright and early, 7 to 10 Uh, Mountain Standard Time. We're here and we'll be giving you all the tools and information you need. Stick with us, folks. Until tomorrow, watch after each other, look out for each other, and make it a great day. We'll talk again tomorrow.